Hey, Rachel, is... Whoa, is that God Loves, Man Kills? It sure is, Miles. Why is it out? I mean, not that I need to ask. It's the best X-Men story ever, pretty much. But don't you have to finish up the reading for the podcast? This is for the podcast. Oh, I thought we were on the New Mutants, uh, that Cloak and Dagger arc, remember? Well, yeah, but this is for the special. The what? The special? Remember how our Patreon supporters unlocked a whole bunch of milestone goals really fast? Uh, yeah, that's why we've been doing those video reviews. Exactly. Well, one of those goals was semi-annual giant-sized specials. Oh, cool. Sounds fun. And we're recording the first one today. What? 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 Rachel Adderton. And I'm Miles Stokes. And we are here to explain the X-Men. Because it's about time someone did. Welcome to the 37th episode of Rachel and Miles Explain the X-Men, where we walk you through the ins, outs, and retcons of our favorite superhero soap opera. And welcome also to our first ever giant-size special. As we noted in the opening, this was a Patreon milestone goal that our subscribers unlocked, so you can blame them for it. We are going to start off in the tradition of annuals and specials by looking at a very special standalone story. We've mentioned it before, been saving it for a rainy day, which it is because we are in Portland and it's December. So we're going to be looking at Marvel graphic novel number five. God Loves, Man Kills. God Loves, Man Kills is the fifth of the Marvel graphic novels. It was originally published in 1982. We've touched on these briefly before, but Miles, do you want to talk a little bit about the Marvel graphic novel program, how it worked, how it relates to continuity? These were basically kind of special, usually about roughly quadruple-sized issues that were larger format and perfect bound. Is that what it's called? Oh, yeah. well done. You're learning all the publishing words. Huzzah! So they were on a variety of topics. Uh, the first one was at the death of Captain Marvel. This is also where we saw the New Mutants premiere in the New Mutants graphic novel. That was the first Captain Marvel, right? Uh, yes, not Carol Danvers, the previous one. God Loves, Man Kills was the fifth of these. And even if you're not familiar with this book, which you should be, because again, it's just phenomenally good, the story might sound familiar as we're talking about it because it's also the basis for the second X-Men movie, X2, X-Men United. Admittedly, a very loose basis, but yeah, I mean, the parallels are, are pretty clear. The original concept was either Jim Shooters or Chris Claremont's. I'm a little unclear on which is which. I do know, though, that the original artist on this was slated to be Neil Adams. He ended up leaving the project because of contract disputes and it ended up being drawn by a guy named Brent Anderson. Brent Anderson had done a short run on Kazar previously and a handful of fill-ins, including a few X-Men issues. He's best known, though, I think, for being the co-creator of Astro City along with Kurt Busiek and Alex Ross. Yeah, and on this book, he is phenomenal. I mean, I love me some Neil Adams, don't get me wrong, but I am so glad that Brent Anderson ended up doing God Loves, Man Kills. He's got this more realistic style, I guess you could say. It's also sort of painterly that fits really well. Well, he's got his... The way he draws faces reminds me a lot of Adam's actually. Actually, very, very textured, very, very expressive faces. His composition puts more emphasis on characters, and his layouts are much cleaner, which works really well for this. It's really easy to picture this story drawn by Neil Adams, and I think it would have been good, but ultimately I feel like it landed for the best with Anderson. And I remember when I first read this, I mean, this was in the, the original batch of X-Men comics that I got oh so many moons ago. 
And so I'd been reading, you know, the 90s stuff with its, with its very distinctive 90s visual style, the uh, 80s stuff, and some reprints of the 70s stuff, and this was just nothing like any of them. And I think because of that, I had a, had a different set of expectations when I started reading it. And let me tell you, as a kid, between Claremont's writing, which really goes in directions the main comic never does, and Anderson's art, which is just so different than everything else that had been done at the time, I was not expecting for this comic to be what it was. I remember finishing it the first time and just not really knowing what to make of it, other than knowing that I'd read something really good and really important. This was my first 616 X-Men story. I read Age of Apocalypse first. You lent me Age of Apocalypse. And then, I, I still don't know why I started and then you with let Age me of this. I, I assume because it was sort of a standalone thing that existed outside of larger continuity or could. <laughs> I guess so. Or because we were teenagers and made poor decisions. <laughs> there is that. I'm going to go with that one. But then you lent me this. In fact, you lent me the copy that I have sitting in front of me right now. And it was, again, yeah, it was completely different stylistically, narratively. It was amazing. The relationships of the Marvel graphic novels to continuity really varied, and this was originally intended to be a non-canon story. Which is interesting, because, I mean, it's been referenced so many times since then. With stuff with Striker, stuff with the Purifiers, they've just come back again and again. Yes and no. They have mostly come back since 2003, which is when it officially became canon, with the extreme X-Men story God Loves Man Kills 2 that was also written by Claremont. And that, as far as I can tell, was specifically scheduled to coincide with the release again of X2, which is based on God Loves Man Kills. Chronologically, it's generally placed between Uncanny X-Men 167 and 168, so in the aftermath of the Brood Saga. And yeah, we did an episode about that. That was episode number 20, one of my personal favorites, actually. Right, the brood they carried. Yes. Um, now, it's interesting because at this point in continuity, the new mutants were at the school, but they don't show up at all in God Loves Man Kills. They're not even mentioned. So treating this as sort of an interstitial story, I think is fine. It stands alone really, really beautifully. Speaking of continuity and who is there, let's quickly take a look at the team in play because this is somewhat earlier than the X-Men we've been discussing in the most recent episodes, and it's a slightly different lineup. In some ways, this is like the most classic lineup of X-Men ever. Yeah, when I think about sort of the X-Men as a team, this is the lineup I think of. So we have Cyclops still leading the team. We have Storm, Wolverine, Nightcrawler, Colossus, and at this point, Kitty Pride is called Ariel. Right, this is all five minutes between Sprite and Shadowcat. This is post-Dark Phoenix Saga, so Jean Grey's been dead for a while. The X-Men have, you know, largely mourned her. She doesn't really come up in the story at all. Right, this is post-Jean Grey, pre-Madeline Pryor. So as far as the story, I guess let's just dive into what happens in God Loves, Man Kills. So much. So it actually opens with a lynching, like a literal lynching. Extremely literal. So you have a pair of very young black children being chased down, killed, and chained up to a swing set by a group of white paramilitary folks. We talked a lot about the mutant metaphor and how it relates to civil rights. It's played as a metaphor for marginalized populations. And I kind of want to take a minute to talk about how God Loves, Man Kills approaches this. Because first of all, you can't not, given what it opens with. Oh yeah, I mean, that's a very clear statement of purpose, I guess, for lack of a better way of putting it, when the book opens. Like, we are going to address these things, we are not going to shy away from them, let's go. And you know, this isn't the 60s, it is 1982. Using images that are incredibly charged and provocative, I think even now... One of the subtler side effects of having the two kids in that scene be black is although it derives home the civil rights connection, it also kind of makes it clear that this isn't a story about mutants as a metaphor for something else. This isn't, you know, mutants who are all middle class white people who are standing in for other populations and groups <laughs> because they're mutants. I mean, that's what the X-Men have defaulted into, unfortunately, a lot. Oh, yeah, especially. I mean, that was the entire Silver Age right there. That it starts with that point, not necessarily of metaphor, but of intersection. 
Now, I do want to jump in and say, so this episode's going to go up sort of between Christmas and New Year's, and I know we've chosen some very dark subject matter. Trust us, it gets way more heroic and epic, but does remain very, very dark. And you know, it's X-Men, and I think that mix of hope and darkness is really kind of what the franchise is all about. Also, it's one of our favorite stories. So this can be kind of our holiday gift to ourselves, is that we get to talk about this dire, depressing story. And honestly, you know what? It's the middle of winter. Christmas is complex and fraught for a lot of people. I think it's okay to go a little dark here. Oh, yeah. And at the end of the prologue, someone shows up to very gently take the kids' bodies down and mourn what's happened to them. And it is probably not who you are expecting. The first mutant character we see, well, except for the children who have been chased down. The first named mutant character, the first mutant character we know. Is Magneto. But this is Magneto a lot sadder than we've seen him. He's not like this megalomaniacal villain cackling about taking over the world. He's just sad that this has happened, that this is a world where these things are still going on. We're going to end up readers theatering a lot of this just because there are a lot of terrific dialogue in here. As he brings them down from the swing set and turns it into sort of a, a funeral cairn almost. An execution. Not the first. Far from the last. Only this time the victims are children. So young. So innocent, to know such terror and pain, their only crime, that they had been born. And for all my vaunted power, I was unable to save them. No more shall die, but those responsible for this atrocity. Whatever the cost, however long it takes, I will hunt them down and make them pay. So what we've seen of Magneto so far is primarily a character focused on mutant supremacy. What he is after is either getting power for mutants or killing humans. The story for me represents a pretty significant shift because this is the first time that we see him taking action expressly and primarily to save lives. Yeah, we've seen sort of the more nuanced, gray, even softer side of Magneto before. That's absolutely happened. I yeah, mean, we saw that in X-Men 150, which would have come out maybe about a year before. Yeah, and I mean, you know, in Secret Wars, he certainly played as a, a grayer character as well. But this right here, like, I was thinking, why do I love Magneto so much? Because we've been going through all these Magneto stories, and he's a really fun villain. But honestly, it's this story right here that made me really care about Magneto, that made him, honestly, probably my favorite character in the entire X-Men universe. In terms of Magneto and the X-Men, this story is all about nuance. It's about the fact that they are, to an extent, working toward a common goal, which is peace for mutants. It's just that the means to that and the corollaries attached to it are very different for them. In this story, we will ultimately see them team up. But first, we get a brief introduction to the X-Men, who's on the team, who they are, what their powers are. All of this is intelligence that's been collected by a man named Reverend William Stryker. He's going to be the main antagonist of this story. He's a televangelist. He's super famous. He's sort of this evangelical Christian leader, very charismatic. So I got the distinct impression when I first read this, and much more even later, that he's very deliberately built up as a Billy Graham analog, at least in terms of his reach and influence. You know, he's got close relationships with senators. It's you know, stated outright later on that he's got the president's ear. He's set up as a crusader more than a fundraiser. I feel like this is coming out at a time where you have a lot of very specific televangelist stereotypes like the Baker's. He is something different. He is someone who is perceived as someone to be taken seriously in a way that I think evangelists often aren't in politics and larger culture. And you described him as uh, being sort of a crusader. And in fact, his ministry is called the Striker Crusade. I mean, I think yeah. that's a pretty clear yeah, statement of, hey, here's here is our goal. Here's what we're doing. He is rapidly anti-mutant. He also has, and it's not explored in context of this story how he has it, but he has access to a phenomenal level of military technology. This dude has successfully infiltrated the X-Mansion, which I think previously the Hellfire Club has managed. These are the most powerful people on Earth. He has 
basically mandroids. He has extremely powerful weapons. He has a cerebro analog. He's running basically a war under the auspices of his ministry. But for now, what we cut to is our first uh, scene of any of the X-Men. And so we open with Kitty flying out the door of Stevie Hunter's dance studio in a fistfight with another student. Not another mutant, just a kid who's making a bunch of anti-mutant comments. It's clear that he's one of those kids of around that age who basically just gets all of his views from his parents. And his parents are uh, members of the Striker Crusade. They really hate mutants. You know, mutants are like a blight on society that Striker's going to clean up. And Kitty is really furious, understandably. And she just jumps him. So the fight gets broken up by Colossus and by Stevie Hunter, the dance instructor herself. But Kitty is still furious. And they point out that, for example, Kitty has a lot of martial arts training. She is a superhero. It is not okay for her to just pick fights with baseline people. And Kitty then makes an analogy which we are not going to repeat in this podcast. I'm assuming you can figure out what this is from context. In terms of writing, I mean, it's definitely something that I could totally see a 13-year-old pulling out. And I think it is an illustration of the ways in which God Loves Man Kills just does things that Uncanny X-Men typically does not, that the main comics do not. It's willing to address some stuff that is going to be controversial, that is going to be harsher, that is going to shock some people. I think it's a stronger story for it. And I also want to point out in context of that, something we didn't mention when we were talking about the Marvel graphic novels is that they were, I believe, exempt from Comics Code Authority rules because of their size. Like their physical size or their Their physical size. It's my understanding that the Comics Code Authority and what was defined as a comic book was based, among other things, on physical dimensions. That's one of the reasons that, for example, the old warring publications like Creepy and Eerie were big oversized issues because then they were magazines not comics. Gotcha, gotcha. So Marvel graphic novels, I assume, wouldn't have been either. And I don't see a CCA stamp on the front of this, and I think this is a first edition of it. Uh, Yeah, I believe our copy is. Meanwhile, we have uh, Kitty sort of storming off. The purifiers are watching all this happen, the purifiers being the humans that tracked down and killed those two children at the beginning, who are clearly working for Stryker. Um, And they actually go back and forth like, hey, this woman, she's a muni lover, should we just take her out while we're here? And they eventually decide not to, but I mean, it's interesting. They're basically referring to her as a traitor. Because Stryker's rhetoric in his crusade is very, very much the rhetoric of religion. And he's citing Bible verses and he's religiously and faith motivated. Purifier's rhetoric and the purifiers and the way they address this is very military and very much not. There are some of them who are diehard true believers, but mostly they seem to just be people who really hate mutants. Right. And, you know, this is a good excuse to work on taking more of them out with a guy who might have the the political power, the social power to do so. Meanwhile, at Stately Xavier Manor. Stately Xavier Manor. After some brief denouement, a great exchange between Kitty and Wolverine about the fight, the X-Men settle down to watch a debate on TV between Professor Charles Xavier and the aforementioned Reverend William Stryker, which I believe is actually the first time we hear him directly introduced. Stryker just creams him. Yeah, I mean, Stryker's this very charismatic, warm, down-to-earth figure, and Xavier comes off as kind of cold and scary, which, well, yeah, I totally believe that he does. Yeah, I mean, we were talking about this this morning. You mentioned that it's totally the 1980 Reagan-Carter debate, and it absolutely is. Yeah, I mean, at one point, uh, Stryker just sort of shuts Xavier's point down by just doing a, well, there you go again kind of line, which is exactly what Reagan did, and Reagan was also playing on his own charisma. It's so much easier to defend a status quo and paranoia than it is to argue for nuance and for people to 
actively question a familiar and comfortable position, which is what Xavier's trying to do. And one of the things I love about this story is that it looks a lot at how people are influenced, how people are changed, how people are manipulated. And it doesn't just say, oh, they're just looking for sound bites. I mean, in this case, you know, for a televised debate, that is going to be what it's about. But we do see a lot more nuance and a lot more thoughtfulness in just average people over the course of the story. Like, the mutant metaphor is usually painted in such broad strokes. And in this story, it's really not. Well, and there is also almost no unsympathetic villainy in this story, which is interesting. I mean, Magneto is straight up one of the good guys in this. Even Stryker, who is doing some really terrible things, is a tragic character in a lot of ways. He's also not a supervillain. And I, I, I know I keep going back to Stryker, but I feel like he's the center of what makes this story work. God Loves Man Kills is, for me, what crystallizes what the X-Men are about. I completely agree. And superhero stories are often defined by the antagonist, you know, who they're going up against. And in this case, they're not going up against a supervillain. They're not even going up against a fighter. They're they are going, going up against an ideologue. Yeah, a person who himself is just a representation of an idea, of this bigotry, of this hatred. But yeah, Xavier is just crashes and burns on this interview. He's also got the world's scariest eyebrows, which I cannot imagine helps. I love the way Anderson draws his eyebrows. I feel like Xavier would have had much better luck in this debate if he just like had a few kittens crawling over him, or maybe ferrets. Maybe if he made like a toupee out of kittens. A kitten toupee? I love this plan. Oh, so do the kittens. It would have completely changed the story. Everything would have worked out fine. I mean, it would have been, been a like very, four pages. Very different comic. God loves man kittens. <laughs> problem solved everyone have... loves kittens the marvel graphic novel that could have been rachel we just fixed bigotry there's no more bigotry there's only kittens now no oh anyway the x-men are generally pretty aghast at this and appropriately so and they decide that they're going to go blow off some steam in the danger room we've talked before about danger room sequences being the meet the x-men sequences and we've already met them we've heard strikers briefs on them and their powers but this is sort of the meet the x-men as a team now not all of them um, we should point out that cyclops and storm are actually hanging out with xavier they accompanied him to the debate physically you know which is actually one of the things i like about this danger room sequence because it's the x-men minus all three of the team leaders right so we just have nightcrawler colossus wolverine and kitty pride right and Ileana running things up in the booth and it's a fun sequence it's all about cooperation and team dynamics and creative problem solving in ways that, and again, I think this is characteristic of good early on Danger Room sequences, in ways that are almost all going to come back later in the story. Oh, yeah. You know, you set up the way people can use their powers, the way they can do things in unorthodox fashions and work together. And absolutely. I mean, it's Chekhov's Danger Room training sequence. <laughs> so Storm and Cyclops are out with Xavier at the debate, which is unfortunate for all three of them, because on their way back, they appear to be straight up killed by bad guys with guns. Yeah, their car gets blown up, and then Cyclops is shot by a sniper rifle, and Storm tries to fly Xavier away, and they get hit with a rocket launcher. And I remember when I first reading this, like, seriously, what? Holy shit, what is happening here? How could the comic be doing this? Nightcrawler gets a call that they're all dead, they've all been killed. And that sort of closes the first chapter of the story. The comic then cuts to the Xavier Mansion still, but a bit later, once it's sort of sunk in, and we see Kitty off. I don't even know if brooding is the right word, because that implies a certain level of self-indulgence, and she's just she's just sad. Ilyana comes and finds her, and we've mentioned Ilyana. This is teenager Ilyana, not six-year-old Ilyana. Right, and they talk for a little bit, and just have a good kind of connective talk, and once again, the Kitty-Ilyana friendship remains one of my favorites in the Marvel Universe. But there's only so much time for friendship because they come across an electronic sensor module. Yeah, it's like this sort of surveillance device that someone's attempted to disguise it. And so they decide to hang out and wait and see what's going on. Meanwhile, everyone else is going to check out the car crash. And it becomes clear very quickly, I mean, you know, Claremont doesn't let people stay dead for very long at cliffhangers, that 
while bodies were found at this site and there was definitely this huge fire and huge accident, those weren't the right people. Wolverine's like, they smell different. This isn't them. I don't know if they're still alive, but this wasn't them that got killed here. Wolverine, in fact, specifically points out... I've staged more than a few such accidents in my day, boy. This has all the earmarks. Damn, Wolverine. He's been through some dark shit. We know that. He's done some dark shit during his days with the evil Canadian Secret Service because Marvel Canada is just horrifying. Well, Marvel Canadian canon. For the record, next time I play a modern day role-playing game, I'm going to have a weapon called the Marvel Canadian canon. Ooh. You can't see the look on Rachel's face right now. I don't think she approves. Yeah, it's somewhere between horror at Marvel Canada and horror at the pun and horror at the fact that you're going to have to stat that up. Anyway, so yeah, the purifiers show up here because they want to take the X-Men out. The X-Men are doing all right, but Magneto shows up. And just as the purifiers are doing terrible things to the X-Men, he rips their mandroid-esque armor apart around them and just sort of lifts them up in the air. And the X-Men are like, oh, holy shit, it's our greatest adversary. How Has this day gotten even worse somehow? And he just says, sheathe your claws, Wolverine. Magneto is here as a friend. And if you'll have me, an ally. God, yes, Magneto, we will have you as an ally. One of my You're favorite the things in X-Men, and part of this is because I'm a huge Magneto fan, but one of my favorite things are the rare occurrences when Magneto's like, all right, you know what? We haven't gotten along in the past, but this shit is really bad. We need to team up for the greater good. We need to work together. I gotta say, that is one of the few downsides to having him on the X-Men these days, is that you can't have those moments, because that's how you knew things were getting really serious, is the X-Men and Magneto were teaming up. That means that there's something that's bigger than any of them. Yeah, so at this point, the X-Men and Magneto have a couple of purifiers who are encased in sort of metal cocoons made from their suits, and Wolverine does his one-claw, two-claw, wanna-go-for-three kind of trick, and Magneto's like, no, we don't have time for this. And he does something it's not really clear exactly what from the art but he basically rips apart their costumes and is just like pulling them apart he rips apart the metal cocoons around them and it's not really clear what he's doing to the person other than rapidly stripping them but whatever it is it's enough to make them talk and it's a good thing that they talk too because outside far away Ilyana and kitty have just been captured Right. The purifiers have successfully snuck up on them, and they're getting taken away. And it looks, in fact, like Ilyana's been killed, like she's been shot. But before we find out what's going on, we cut to what's probably the most disturbing part of the entire story. This is the opening to Chapter 3, and what a chapter opening it is. The World Trade Center, Manhattan. And they bring him unto the place Golgotha, and they crucify him. And the they in question is the X-Men, or sort of demonic versions of them, and the him in question is Charles Xavier. Yeah, it's these X-Men literally nailing him to a cross and raising it up with Professor X in agony. And then in turn, one after another, each of the X-Men come up and just do something to him. Like Nightcrawler bites out his throat, Kitty Pride phases out his heart, Storm strikes him with lightning. It's so visceral, and the entire thing is just washed in this sort of sickly orange-red. There's no full color on these pages. Yeah, it's obviously not real. These are not X-Men we recognize. It's not a scene that makes any sense. And out of that, Xavier is pulled and healed and offered a hand of friendship by a man whom we can't see, but eventually discover is Stryker. Stryker has Xavier in a sensory isolation tank, and he's torturing him and basically trying to brainwash him. Mm-hmm. But yeah, it's kind of clever the way Stryker is doing this. I mean, super evil, but also clever. He's got Cyclops and Storm um, wired up to machines that basically force a psionic link between them and Xavier. And so he's torturing them. Xavier's perceiving that pain is coming from his students, and his mind is rationalizing using his own guilt toward his failings. 
why they would be causing pain to him. It's, and it's making it all his fault. And so Stryker clearly knows what he's doing, or he's just hired a very good psychologist. Well, he's, yeah, he's, he's, he's hired an expert. And at this point, we also find out a little bit about Stryker's backstory. Yeah, and this is just sort of his internal monologue, as he's prompted to remember. Stryker was a, an army ranger, and when his tour was over, he and his wife headed south to visit his family. She was pregnant, the car crashed, she went into labor, and in the middle of the desert, Stryker delivered her son, and he was a mutant. And Stryker was horrified, thought that he was a monster and an abomination, and killed him, and then killed his wife, and decided that he was going to kill himself. The car was leaking gas. He put Marcy and the baby in the car, got in beside them, and dropped a match. I want to talk about this sequence, because this is horrifying, and it's also incredibly sad, and the art is so much a part of that. Yeah, you can just see the anguish on Stryker's face, just the confusion and the fear, and he just can't believe that this has happened. He doesn't understand how the world could be like this, that, you know, his child could be a monster. But he's so bewildered and broken. It looks like a series of old photographs, even. It's pretty powerful. So he survives the explosion. He's thrown free. He's consumed by his guilt, appropriately, I think. Drinks himself out of the military then sees a magazine article by Charles Xavier about mutants. It's the first time he makes the connection. He, you know, he realizes that's what his son was, but he's still got to find a way to rationalize what he did. And so what he decides is that, you know what? This was God's doing. God was calling me to complete this important work of removing these abominations from the world. This is all part of the plan. Everything was worth it. Everything was necessary. What I did was worth it and necessary and right. And so Stryker uses his faith to, to rationalize this, and it becomes this sort of self-propagating cycle. And I think that's something that's important to recognize, because at first glance, you could see God Loves Man Kills as extremely anti-religious, and I don't think it is. I think what it does discuss is people essentially using religion as just a screen to rationalize their own bigotry, to make it more palatable both to them and the people around them. It's worth noting that in the movie in X2, which is based on this, Stryker isn't a religious leader. He's a general. And he uses the same diehard fanatical belief, but in this case, it's national security and that he is doing what is necessary as a patriot. I think it's interesting seeing how much in both cases the fanaticism is largely there to support and prop up previously existing bigotry. So speaking of bigots, the purifiers have captured Ilyana and Kitty has stowed away in the trunk. They've figured out that she's there. They've tried to gas the trunk. They've shot it. And it turns out she's escaped. And she swings briefly into a closed bodega and finds a payphone and calls the Xavier Mansion and gets Nightcrawler. What I love about this, this is almost line for line an earlier scene in one of Kitty's first appearances in X-Men. Oh, right. When the Hellfire Club's after her, totally. Yeah, when she's running away and she calls the Xavier Mansion, she doesn't know any of them but the ones who come to her house. And Nightcrawler answers. And that first time he comes out to save her and she is terrified of him. And this time she is so happy to hear his voice. Yeah, I love it. I mean, this is a standalone story, but if you're versed in X-Men up until this point, there's a lot more to be gained from it, I think. Yeah, there are a lot of callbacks. And she she keeps running and she ends up phasing her way onto a train. And we see the first cop who we're going to see in the story. And there are going to be a lot of them and they're going to play in pretty heavily. God, I find the role that the police play in this story absolutely fascinating. Right, because they're almost universally good guys. They're almost universally, even if they don't really know what's going on, doing their best to do the right thing and to help people who need help. They're basically the positive neutral. They're the people who, at least in context of this story, almost universally don't really have a dog in the fight 
I talked a while ago about what Captain America means to me in terms of the ideal versus the reality of America and patriotism. And these are like, you know, the Captain America equivalent of cops. These are sort of the ideal of what you're told as a kid that police officers are supposed to be, who are there to protect the good guys and pay attention and not let anyone get hurt. And also to have pretty sweet mustaches in almost every example. And I really appreciate that in a police officer. This guy, unfortunately, gets a bullet for his trouble because the purifiers do get onto the train. They shoot him and are about to kill Kitty when all of a sudden the train gets lifted up into the sky and a dude in a nice purple cape shows up and says, you know what? Nope, this is not happening. If you're used to a more modern version of Kitty, for a long time, her default state was phased. Initially, it was really challenging for her to use her powers. Like she could only do it a certain amount and it was exhausting. And so she's pretty much at the end of her rope here. Yeah, so Magneto very handily just takes the purifiers out, also magnetically pulls the bullet out of the cop's body, which I found kind of interesting because normally you see Magneto as this just human-hating villain, and in this he's like, this cop was trying to do the right thing for a mutant. I'm going to help him out too. To be fair, there's a decent chance that he actually killed the cop by doing that. With gunshot wounds, what actually does damage is not having the bullet there, it's the damage that the bullet does tearing through tissue on the way in or out. Often, by the time it's embedded, tearing it out is going to cause more bleeding and cause more trauma. Well, Magneto's got very good control over his powers. I'm sure he knows what he's doing. Trust the man in the purple cape. He wouldn't have that purple cape unless he knew what he was doing. It's not like a merit badge, dude. There's not a test. I I, mean, he decided he wanted a purple cape and he got a purple cape. I was never a Boy Scout. I don't know how these things work. Research. I didn't get my purple cape in research either. That aside, so once again, we cut over to Charles Xavier in another clear hallucinogenic state, just sort of in the middle of the spotlight, with this angelic figure walking toward him, quoting Bible verses to him, saying, hey, do you believe? Xavier finally decides that yes, yes, he does. And he's got this beatific, empty smile on his face. And Stryker says, prove it by killing Storm and Cyclops. And so, yeah, he sends a mind blast over to them and... The next thing we see is them with their heads down on their chests, with blood coming out of their noses, pretty clearly dead. The other X-Men, who who have not just been killed, are realizing, all right, we have got to stop this, we have got to save the Professor, we've got to save Storm and Cyclops. The X-Men infiltrate Stryker's operation, and they grab his pet psychologist and interrogate him. Nightcrawler, who has been protesting against torture and threats as a mode of interrogation, is in the position of having to interrogate this guy. And I kind of love this scene. First, because it's pretty funny. Nightcrawler is holding the guy upside down and just does a straight-on Bond villain and actually says, we have ways of making you talk, but more of making you die. (laughs) And I think it's a great Nightcrawler moment, both for the silliness, but also for the fact that he's doing something so antithetical that he can't even really quite fathom a way to do it as himself. Right, it's like he almost can't take it seriously. So the X-Men are able, via this intelligence, to get Storm and Cyclops' bodies and also to free Ileana, who's still currently a captive of the Purifiers. As it turns out, to everyone's immense surprise... Scott and Roro are in fact still alive. It turns out what happened is that Xavier, even though he did try to kill them, there was a subconscious part of him, they theorize, that wasn't capable of doing so. And so he just put them in a a near-death state, almost a stasis. So Scott and Aurora wake up and they're like, wait a minute, Magneto's here. What's going on? Holy crap. And Magneto says basically not to worry about it. I am not your enemy, X-Men, nor do I consider you mine. True, my goal has ever been the conquest of Earth, but solely to create a world where our race, Homo Superior, can live in peace. Look at yourselves, risking your lives for a humanity that would rather see you behind bars or dead. Why do you persist? Is your way any better? A mutant dictatorship? 
Do not take that tone with me, boy. I have lived under a dictatorship, and seen my family butchered by its servants. When I rule, it will be for the betterment of all. Contentment breeds tranquility, discontent, rebellion. Therefore, I shall ensure the one by eliminating the root causes of the other. Hunger, poverty, disease, war. The freedoms lost will not be noticed even in the most libertarian of states. And the material benefits should more than balance the scales. Anyone can create a utopia for a single generation, Magneto. The trick is making it last. Who preserves your dream when you're gone? You, of course, Cyclops. And the X-Men. Why do you think I want you by my side? So, that's fascinating. Yeah, I mean, this is him at his most nuanced, and this is really the beginning of that. I like that his aims are not bad aims. Now, as far as how what he thinks is necessary to get there, well, I don't think any of us want that, especially since most of us are human. But I, I like that overall, he's an idealist. Overall, he just wants everyone to be happy and get along. Do you think it's significant that it's termed specifically his dream? I think it's absolutely significant. I mean, this, this story may not play up the Xavier-Magneto dichotomy as much as some do, although it's certainly present. But yeah, it is a story that's all about ideals and ideas. It's all about words and concepts and vision. Well, one of the reasons it doesn't play up the Xavier-Magneto dichotomy as much is that Xavier isn't the primary counterpoint to Magneto in this story. Less so here, but much more later, it's going to be Cyclops. That's absolutely true. I mean, you have Stryker as the clear villain, but then you have these two visions of, well, what do we do with this? And those are Cyclops and Magneto. And I think it's really both of the characters at their absolute best. But for now, we come to the climax of the story, which is this great big sermon that Stryker is going to give to a bunch of assembled world leaders. I think it's important to note, too, as he's getting up to do this, that while he has started from a position of considerable influence, he is pushing himself further and further out to the extreme fringe. Yeah, we have a newscaster um, describing this as, as we're introduced to the scene. And the newscaster is talking about how a lot of even evangelicals are really starting to question what Stryker is doing. It is one thing, they note, to criticize government policy and the moral state of the nation, quite another to single out a specific group of people and brand them as literally as less than human. To many, it betokens an attitude uncomfortably reminiscent of that held in Nazi Germany against the Jews. I think it's worth talking about in terms of Stryker's maybe relationship to and history of evangelism in America, because this is, this is 1982. In the 60s and into the 70s, you know, wide-scale white evangelical leaders, like the really prominent ones, were largely aggressively anti-integration. You see that starting to shift, and by 1982, by the time this is coming out, there's been a major, major shift in the tone and rhetoric there. It's interesting seeing how that's reflected in the newscaster's analysis and the way Claremont writes the newscaster's analysis and how the popular response and the critical response to Stryker's campaign fits into that large historical context and that changing and evolving role of prominent evangelicals in America. I should say prominent white evangelists in America, because that is an, a really important distinction, because a lot of the civil rights movement also came out of black evangelical Christianity. Yeah, absolutely true. And I do like that the book, I mean, you know, it doesn't look greatly at the political situation in terms of religion at the time, but it does seem to bear it into account. And that's really cool. Yeah, there are there are a lot of things that I wonder, reading in retrospect, how this would have read to someone in 1982 who had grown up in the political climate of that particular era, the Reagan-Carter debate thing that you brought up earlier is, I think, a good sign of that. And, and so I wonder what we're missing by virtue of, of reading it decades later and what we're maybe picking up on in terms of larger historical trends that wouldn't have been as obvious to someone reading it as it came out. Well, one thing that definitely has nothing to do with history is Stryker's plan for what he's going to do during this speech. Are you kidding? Because that definitely actually happened in 1982. I am pretty sure that a dude actually wired Cerebro to use Professor X to brain zap mutants. 
Yeah, now this may be especially familiar to you if you've seen X2, the second X-Men movie, because something kind of similar happens. But basically, to recap, Xavier is wired up to a version of Cerebro that William Stryker has kind of reverse-engineered from the information he's gotten about the X-Men. And this is basically weaponized Cerebro. It doesn't find mutants. It doesn't just amplify Xavier's psychic signals. It basically takes Xavier's brain and turns it into an anti-mutant weapon. Yeah, it links him to every mutant mind on the planet, and given how powerful of a telepath Xavier is, and given that he's effectively brainwashed at this point, at the chosen time, he will kill all the mutants in the world. Is it every single one on the planet in this? It's definitely proximity-mediated, and it's something that Stryker can aim and fire, because he does that to Magneto later. Like, he specifically fires a beam from this thing at Magneto. Mm Mm-hmm. And so as this begins to activate, we start seeing the X-Men and a lot of the mutants around, just random people who don't even realize they're mutants, start to bleed from their nose and ears. And the way the arts handled on this was something that kind of disturbed me when I was a kid when I was reading this, because normally, you know, in a comic book, you have black lines around all the different changes in color. So if there's like a puddle of water, you'll see a black line around it, and then the blue or gray or whatever coloring the puddle itself. Yeah, it's very much colored in line art a lot of the time. And in this case, the blood is just sort of these little splashes. There's nothing around it. It It just seems so visceral and messy and for me that just it it just made my skin crawl to look at it because it just I could feel this hemorrhaging happening inside that you didn't know where it was coming from and just bleeding all of a sudden and just the kind of fear that would go with that damn that's some evocative coloring it is it very much is especially when you're like you know eight and reading this story was that during the era when you were hiding a copy of dracula behind the couch because you were scared of the cover probably was yes i think it's easy to forget as people who are growing up in the current age of comics art and who've grown up reading comics and who at this point for me i i read everything with such an editor brain just how much impact smaller stuff like that can have absolutely yeah And so, yeah, as this happens, Anne, who's the leader of the purifiers that we've seen a number of times, goes up to Stryker saying, hey, the X-Men are coming. Whoa, wait a minute. What's going on? Why am I bleeding? And the answer, of course, and inevitably is because as it turns out, she's a mutant. And Stryker says, it is God's will, child, not my own. I am truly sorry. And he pushes her off the very tall stage, and she very visibly, very graphically breaks her neck and dies. So Stryker just killed someone on national television at his largest campaign. Yeah, and so people are understandably starting to freak out, but at the same time, the X-Men are sort of backstage. They're like, all right, we have to get Xavier. We have a vague idea of what's going on, and it's really, really bad. We need to stop this immediately. And initially, um, Ariel is going to phase through and grab him, but he senses her coming immediately, mind blasts her, stops her. And what ultimately happens is one of the better here are the X-Men doing something cool sequences. Nightcrawler teleports Wolverine to Xavier. And at the same time, Cyclops fires an optic blast, just seemingly out into nowhere. Cyclops has mad wild geometry powers, so he can do great stuff with ricochets. That's what's going on here. Xavier devotes his attention to stopping the obvious threat, which is Wolverine and Nightcrawler, which gives Cyclops' beam time to reach him and knock him out. The plan was basically for them to attack in unison with the idea that one of them would get through. So Cyclops got through, which meant Xavier got knocked out. Wolverine's like... Psych, your zap KO'd him. My claws would have killed. To which Cyclops responds, I know. Ever the pragmatist. I mean, we see Cyclops at his ideological best here, but he's still Cyclops. Yeah, I mean, I think what it comes down to, part of why I think this is Cyclops at his best, and both parts of those, Cyclops in sort of ideal form is a pragmatic idealist. He is someone who absolutely believes in Xavier's dream, but also recognizes that right now people are dying. He thought he killed or attempted to kill the two people closest to him, a few hours previously, he, he's an incredibly powerful telepath. This is the way they can stop him. 
they have to stop him and then they will work shit out later. And thankfully, this part works out. But at that point, they're realizing, you know, what we need to do, this isn't just going to be a fight that's going to solve this. We have to take down this guy's ideas. They decide that they're going to take on Stryker. They go ahead and they interrupt his sermon, but they're, they're not the first ones in there. Magneto has already tried to get in. But he's been zapped by that mind blast before, and there's a crowd kind of closing in on him trying to beat him to death, and cops are defending him at this point. Because while Magneto did, in fact, rip the roof off of the auditorium, he did put it back. I like that the policeman considers this evidence of the goodwill of this notorious supervillain. It's like the end of Wayne's World 2. It's okay. We're cleaning it up. Um, and so, yeah, the X-Men show up and confront him and are basically like, let's do it. You're a lucky man. Thanks to you and people like you, mutants live in fear every day of our lives. And sometimes those lives are very short. Less than a week ago, two children in Connecticut were murdered, Striker, condemned solely for an accident of birth. Would you do that to someone because of the color of their skin or their beliefs? To which Striker responds, I do nothing, Cyclops. I am an instrument of the Lord. And whatever a man's color or beliefs, he is still human. Those children and you X-Men are not. Says who? You? What makes your link with heaven any stronger than mine? We have unique gifts, but no more so and no more special than those granted a physician or a physicist or a philosopher or athlete. It could be due to an accident of nature or divine providence. Who's to say? Are arbitrary labels more important than the way we live our lives? What we're supposed to be more important than what we actually are? For all you know, we could be the real human race and the rest of you the mutants. And Stryker points to Nightcrawler and just says, Human? You dare call that thing human? Which is, I think, the iconic panel of God Loves, Man Kills, also the title and basis of the cover for a really excellent Adam Warrock album. And at this point, Kitty jumps onto stage and says, More human than you! Nightcrawler's generous and kind and decent. He had every reason to be bitter, every excuse to become as much of a demon inside and out, but he decided he'd rather learn to laugh instead. I hope I can be half the person he is, and if I have to choose between caring for my friend and believing in your God, then I choose my friend. Aww. Kitty, you're the best. She is. You're such a good teenager. And Stryker says, let those blasphemous words, girl, be your epitaph. And the pacing on these two pages may be the best pacing I've seen in a comic book. As you know, we post visual companions to every episode. If you've got that open already, good on you. If not, we'd recommend pausing and clicking over there right now. We're going to describe what's going on, but you should really see it. It starts with Stryker pointing a gun at the X-Men. Cuts then to a close-up of his hand, the gun pointing to the right. Then the panel to the right is the X-Men, facing left, just standing, stoically, waiting. Stryker's finger on the trigger. His eyes. The hammer pulling back. Blam! Another long shot of Stryker, the same one from before, actually holding the gun. And then Stryker, lowering his gun, looking shocked, dropping it, seeing blood on his fingers, clutching his chest, zooming out to someone else holding a gun, zooming out to the fact that it's a cop, a cop standing by a video camera, and the cop just with a sort of reluctant but firm look on his mustachioed face. The pacing of this, I mean, the whole thing can't take more than like a second and a half, but the tension of it, just drawing it out bit by bit, frame by frame, it gets, really gets across the gravitas of the situation, the significance of what's going to happen next. And when it ends in such an unexpected way, it is truly, I don't know if satisfying is the right word, but there's just a resolution to it that really feels right. 
I actually disagree with you about the spread. I think it's a fantastic sequence. I think there should be a page turn halfway through it. And I will explain why in a separate article, because it is so visually oriented that it would take so long to describe. You don't want to hear that. And uh, a bystander is like, so well, what do we do now? What's going to happen? You just shot that guy. And he's like, yeah. And he was about to shoot an innocent little girl. The bystander says, you know, what about the muties? And the cop says, you know, what about them? They've done as much or as little as you clowns. As far as I'm concerned, they're free to go and good luck to them. They'll need it. So that pretty much wraps up what happens in the main part of the plot. Stryker has been stopped. He's been shot but not killed. But in the epilogue, back at the X-Mansion with Magneto and the X-Men, it becomes very clear that, you know, this guy's been stopped. His ideas are still out there. People are already saying that even though he was wrong, maybe some of the content of what he was saying had something to it. And Xavier is questioning the entire premise and the entire validity of, of his dream and what he's cared about because... Here was Magneto who came and teamed up with the X-Men and was able to stop Stryker while Xavier himself was not voluntarily but still complicit in, in Stryker's violence. Yeah, Xavier starts to wonder, hey, if this is what's effective, if we want to prevent people from dying, maybe you're right, Magneto. Maybe my dream is not going to cut it. I swore long ago that I would see no more X-Men die. If Magneto's is the only means to that end, then so be it. Cyclops jumps in and says, I won't accept that, Charles. Granted, times are tough for us, and they'll probably get a lot worse. Granted, we probably could conquer the world, though the cost in blood would be staggering. But don't you see, either of you, we're human too. A different branch, perhaps, but the same basic tree. Such a fundamental shift in attitude can't be imposed. To have any meaning, it must grow from within. You brought us together to fulfill a dream, Charles, one born of human aspirations, and we've sweat and bled, and some of us have died to make it a reality. I'm not prepared to give it up. The means are as important as the end. We have to do this right or not at all. Anything less negates every belief we've ever had, every sacrifice we've ever made. And with that, Xavier realizes, you know, you're right. You were just telling me what I believe in better than I could remember it myself. Magneto says, are you sure you won't come with me? And Xavier says, I can't. And Magneto, at that, is angry, frustrated. I mean, he sees the X-Men. Well, he outright says it. You were a fool. You were all fools. And Wolverine replies, maybe, by the same token chum, the world's got no shortage of windmills to tilt at. Oh god, I love that line so much. And really, Cyclops' speech, Wolverine's response to Magneto, we talked about this being the definitive X-Men story, and I think there it is, right there. This is what the X-Men are about at their core. We love space bird jerks, we love big silly fights and eye lasers, but this right here, when it comes down to it, this is why X-Men's important. This is why X-Men's special. So yeah, God Loves Man Kills, it's, it's my favorite X-Men story. As much as I love the Dark Phoenix saga, as much as I love the Brood saga, and so many other stories, for me, if I had to just pick one X-Men story to represent the entire franchise, I think it would be this one. I absolutely agree. As you mentioned earlier, this has been a hugely influential story. We're going to see threads of it popping up for years and years, even before it comes back officially into the canon. But it is going to be made official canon in, in 2003 with a story called God Loves Man Kills 2. It comes out roughly concurrent to X2. Yeah, this was actually a storyline in Chris Claremont's Extreme X-Men that was going on at the time. Striker's back. We found out he has a connection with Lady Deathstrike to kind of parallel what happened in the movie. And here's the thing about God Loves Man Kills 2. I think it's actually a pretty good story. The premise, independent of Stryker, is fascinating. It's in the middle of a run that's very uneven quality-wise. And the God Loves Man Kills element, Stryker, his relationship to Lady Deathstrike, which is just sort of jammed in as far as I can tell in an appeal to X2, are the weakest links in that story, which is really unfortunate. Yeah, I think Marvel has packaged God Loves Man Kills and God Loves Man Kills 2 together, and I think that's a mistake. This story just stands alone so perfectly, I think that's the way it should be read. 
I absolutely agree. So I want to talk a little bit about X2. I actually rewatched it last night after rereading the comic to sort of look at some of the similarities and differences and how it compares and what it gains and loses in that process. And I mean, I think the the obvious and superficial difference is making it a story about religious intolerance to a story about military extremism. It's it's sort of a homeland security story now. Well, that and I mean, you also have Wolverine very much at the forefront when he's just one of the characters, no more important than any other in the comic. Yeah, that's sort of a default in the movies, though rewriting stories to make them be about Wolverine is what the movies do. But regardless, it is not a bad way to adapt at least some of the basic premises of it. I mean, I think X-Men 2 is a pretty cool movie. Um, I was happy to see my favorite story pulled onto the screen a little bit when it first came out. Here's the thing. I think X2 is heavily informed by the details of God Loves Man Kills, but not the spirit or tone of it. It doesn't have the ideological conflict that's at the center of this story. While the fight is, is as much against time and nature as it is against humans, against villains. It's not against an idea. And I think that's what makes this story work because the X-Men above all are an idea. They're a dream. They're Xavier's dream. And they're the intersection of Xavier's dream and real people and real human concerns and lives and passions and hatred and all of that stuff. And that's where the best X-Men stories lie. So X2 is a very good movie. It's a very good X-Men story, but it's not an adaptation of God Loves, Man Kills or at least not of the aspects to it that I think define God Loves, Man Kills for me. So that took a long time, but we've got a lot of time to fill. And we talked about a couple different things that we could do with this. We wanted to have, instead of just doing a super long standard episode, we decided we wanted to throw in some bonus content. For that, the first thing we're going to do is introduce you to someone whose name you have heard so far in 36 episodes, but has yet to be in one. And that is our producer, Bobby Roberts. Hey, Bobby. Hi, Bobby. This is really weird. I feel like I'm interloping, like I've, I've phased in from another reality and I'm not supposed to be here. Oh, shit. Is this like a Heroes Reborn coming back kind of thing? I gosh. Don't go too deep, man. <laughs> and see, for, for me, it's the op- exact opposite because like my context for podcasts before and every podcast I'd been on that wasn't like Skype sitting on my bedroom floor with Sims and Wilson was something that you were on or hosting was something like Nerdfight. Yeah. Oh, yeah. Boy, Nerdfight was fun. Man, I miss that. I really, really want that to come back. <laughs> Didn't you guys at one point canonically prove that Nightcrawler is better than Wolverine? It, it was, was you were You were cooler. expecting us it. to fight over it. You said, who's cooler, Nightcrawler or Wolverine? And we were all just like, Nightcrawler. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> I gathered seven <laughs> of the- a complete uh, consensus. Yeah. The, the bigger uh, nerdy minds in Portland. And I was like, I bet you they'll fight over Nightcrawler versus Wolverine. And I threw it out there expecting a grenade to go off and it went- pfft. Nightcrawler, 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 Nightcrawler. Exactly. I was like, I was upset because the segment didn't go the way I wanted it to as a producer, but I was happy because that was the best possible answer. I was not (laughs) expecting everyone to just go, of course, Kurt, you idiot. Can you move on to the next question? (laughs) Yes, yes. We're all always right. (laughs) Yep. So, uh, yeah, I guess this time out, I have questions for you guys. Excellent. Now, you guys just finished over an hour of looking at discussing and deconstructing a single graphic novel. Now, this is over the 30th time in a row you guys have done that. 37th. (laughs) 37th. Neither of you thought this thing would get as popular as it's gotten, and the popularity is still growing. Have you guys thought about how to keep this thing from starting to feel rote after a year or two? Or do you think the shifts in styles and stories from decade to decade will sort of do that work for you? I think the latter definitely is going to be a big part of it. Um, Mm -hmm. X-Men changes a lot over time, and we're moving fast enough that we're going to get into different creators and different eras and different climates and different teams pretty regularly. We also have a lot of sort of backup emergency plans if one of us just has an I can't do it this week. Another thing we're working on is is lining up more guests and have more voices involved. 
Yeah, and I think one of the things that's really worked for me in that regard, well, part of it is that while we've read most of these comics already, like, I think for me at least, it's been many, many, many years. So getting a chance to revisit them, you know, with a little bit more background knowledge of what's been going on since we've been taking such deep dives Mm -hmm. has been really awesome. And also finding stuff that I'd never even heard of, like the X-Men Micronauts miniseries. I didn't even know that existed before we started this show (laughs) and stuff like that. You know, sometimes that works better than others. I mean, yeah, the the Micronauts one had some some questionable stuff in it. It was interesting, though. It made for a good discussion. I think exactly what you said, Rachel. We're going to get to different eras. I mean, right now it's all Claremont all the time, and mm-hmm. that works out because Chris Claremont did phenomenal writing, especially during this era. But as we get to some of the other styles, the other takes on the characters, I'm hoping that'll keep it fresh for the listeners, but, you know, also for us. X-Men are also a really good lens into the state of the business of comics publishing. So, again, as as we're going through it historically, there are a lot of other tangents and directions that we can follow. It's And also, we like talking about X-Men together. It's like being in a very, very small, very obsessively focused book club. <laughs> <laughs> now, at the risk of getting too solipsistic, I guess, do you guys have a favorite episode of your own show at this point? And why is it your favorite? Does it sort of sum up the thesis of what you guys wanted this thing to be when you started out? Or, or was it due to the way the episode came together when you were recording it? Like, was there a day that you guys pushed back from the table and went up the stairs out to your car? Like, that was fucking awesome. <laughs> like, like, what show was that and why? Oh, man. Well, I mean, I think the, the easy answer, I still think the best episode we've ever done is probably the second Dark Phoenix Saga one, the one about, you know, the blue area of the moon and the death of Phoenix. Mm-hmm. Part of that is just that it's some of the strongest material ever written in comics. And so, you know, when you when you have that to lean on, I, I don't think we could have really done a bad episode unless we just made fart noises the whole time or something, <laughs> um, which, by the way, I'm sure there will come an episode where that's exactly what we do. But I think part of it was that we we were just so passionate about that story. and We really let that through and we just got so into it at the risk of sounding immodest i think that really came across in a way that i at least was really pleased with both right after recording and then later on listening to it i think we both felt like yes that's what we wanted i mean i don't think it's immodest i think we're much 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 better at being engaging when we're talking about stories that have a lot of texture and have a lot of latching on points but also that we really care about i don't know if i have a single favorite episode i really really like episode 20 i really like the brood saga episode because i really like the story and because i think it's interesting And I think it also actually pairs really well with that um, End of the Dark Phoenix Saga episode. There's also actually a recent one we did, the one about Kulan Gath when uh, when Manhattan was turned into. Yeah, oh, that was a really fun one to record, too. I feel like we had more fun recording that than we usually do. Yeah, and I think you could kind of pair that as sort of the the equal opposite of the Dark Phoenix episode, and that one was us getting really serious and passionate, and the Kulan Gath one was just us cracking each other up and making stupid D&D jokes the whole time. Mm. And that's just fun. I mean, I think that's kind of what we try to do with the podcast. We try to get across why we love X-Men, why X-Men is such a special book to us and to the industry in general, but also just, you know, this stuff is ridiculous. That's part of why we love it. And getting to riff on that, getting to affectionately joke about it, mm. I never get sick of that. Yeah, well, and that sort of brings me to the next question, because uh, there's a, a bit of relation from what you just said to what I'm about to ask. Now, it's, it's come up uh, on the show before and, and in some way in the show itself, that there are character moments and, and story elements that maybe pack more of a punch than the writer or the artists could have intended because you had found something about those characters that made it easy to project yourself onto them. There's a bit of a personality transference onto what you're seeing in the page. Now, how much of your fandom for the X-Men comes from indulging that sort of transference of identity onto the page? And do the books still work if you attempt to tamp that down or insert some sort of remove between you and the characters on the page? 
those are things that I try to compartmentalize as far apart as I can. <laughs> um, my background is in, in English and literature and writing and in, in critical theory. And, and as an editor, a skill that I have very deliberately developed over a very long time is being able to look critically at material that I also personally care about. In context of the podcast, I mean, that's an interesting space because it, it really bridges that because we're doing criticism and commentary, but we're very much doing it as us. Like, there's no illusion of objectivity here. That can make it challenging to bridge. I mean, I have made absolutely no secret of the fact that Cyclops is my favorite X-Men character. I identify really closely with a lot of, I, I say I identify with the ways he sucks, but with with a, a lot of a lot of the, the more personal and uncomfortable and, and less superhero appealing aspects of the character. But that's really distinct from, at least for me and in terms of how I relate to the material, what I see as his narrative role in X-Men. I, I enjoy Cyclops stories that are about, you know, him being awesome and having a, a good day. But what I really look for as a reader are stories that are good and interesting and go in unexpected and well thought out directions. Like that's that's the stuff that matters to me as a reader. The personal stuff, I mean, X-Men is a company-owned franchise. It's been written by so many different writers in so many different ways, so inconsistently over such a long period of time that I, I feel like if you tie your personal identification with a character or your personal feelings about that with the comics that are coming out, you will exist in a state of perpetual uncertainty and misery. <laughs> <laughs> it's like, oh, hey, I, I really like this character. I really like this storyline. Oh, no, it's the late 90s. Oh, no, <laughs> what happened? It's it's interesting because you're, you're talking about really being careful to compartmentalize in that regard. And I, so I don't have a background as a critic. I don't have a background in, in, in literature. What I do have a background in for as long as I can remember is X-Men. I grew up with these characters. I mean, people will joke about how soap operas are their stories. And for me, X-Men, the X-Men are my stories, mm -hmm. you know? I can't remember a time when these characters weren't there. And so while I definitely don't have a character that I identify with as closely as you do with Cyclops, Rachel, I think for me, so much of my personality was constructed from early on by all of the characters, you know? Like, there's some Shadowcat in there, there's some Rogue in there, there's some Gambit in there when I'm being kind of douchey. Mm -hmm. Um... <laughs> <laughs> But yeah, so for me, like, I, I guess I could attempt to look at these stories objectively, but as long as they're about these characters, as long as they're about these concepts, I mean, I'm going to react emotionally. Like, we were talking about God Loves Man Kills at breakfast today while we were writing, and I find myself getting choked up just talking about it. Like, mm -hmm. I can't, I can't get this stuff out of my brain and out of my heart, and honestly, I wouldn't. I wouldn't want to. Like, yes, I think there's absolutely a place for that, a place for that more objective criticism of how effective is this as art. But one of the things I really try to bring to the show is, you know, you can do that, but let's just get into this. Let's just enjoy this and let's just, you know, let ourselves react to it. Mm. And that's actually what I love about doing the podcast is that it's the one place where I do get to have all of that. Like I get to be the fan and I get to be the critic and they aren't mutually exclusive identities or approaches. To follow up now, is part of your ability to project yourself onto the page like that? Is that what plays a part in your obvious glee when it comes to imagining like the Harvey and Janet Justice League <laughs> that you guys have dreamed up on the show? Or do you think part of the reason you guys dig those guys so much is because it's relatively easier to imagine yourselves as occupying that corner of the Marvel Universe in a realistic fashion rather than to imagine yourselves being like Scott Summers or, or Kurt Wagner? Does that sort of play into why when Harvey and Janet pop up or Peter Corbeau pops up, you guys are like, yes! <laughs> because if I was in the Marvel Universe, I'd... I can see where I'd want to put the, the visor on and optic blast, optic blast, like I'm playing Marvel versus Capcom 2, but 
I might be more like Harvey and Janet. I might be more like Dr. Peter Corpo. <laughs> I, I think, to be fair, the odds of being a top-tier superhero are still slightly higher than the odds of being Super Doctor Astronaut Peter Corbo. True, very true. <laughs> there is only one Peter Corbo in the multiverse. <laughs> and hallowed be his name. <laughs> I, is there... Are there all, I should probably look up whether that's true or not, but <laughs> I want to believe. Well, yeah, I mean, no, I think that's a good point. I think, you know, as much as it's kind of a, a totally silly thing with, with us bringing up, you know, these Hellfire goons that appear in all of two panels ever or something mm-hmm. um i think that does for me at least speak to a desire for this very complex universe to be even more complex to just have more texture not just the big theatrical stuff but also the stupid background stuff you know because mm-hmm. me i mean if i wasn't just you know in some random background job that was unrelated to anything important going on in the marvel universe i'd be like a low-level it guy for shield or something yeah i really do enjoy that and i i like the idea of just all this stuff going on kind of kind of off camera of mm-hmm. You know, Stevie Hunter having this complex backstory that we'll never really hear about. That just that just makes the X-Men universe feel more like home. And I think, yeah, you're right. Feel more like a place that a normal person could could find a place in. I feel like the cartoon kind of primed us for that because a, a year or two before we started doing this podcast, I'd never seen the X-Men cartoon. I'd, the one from I, the 90s, right? I'd never seen any of them initially, but I'd never seen the one from the 90s. Um, I, I basically grew up in largely a pop media vacuum at le- and definitely a franchise media vacuum. And it was on Netflix and we decided we were going to watch all of it because Miles grew up watching it. And really early on, we noticed that the background characters are just amazing. Um, Like, they're really strange a lot of the time. I think our our favorites are from one of... What is it? One of the Proteus episodes, maybe? I, I don't remember there, where. It's but at it's, a carnival, and there are these two bodybuilders who are walking really they're sort like, of like bikers. They're maybe? very much coupley, and they look furious. And one of them is holding a balloon, and they just walk from the right side of the screen <laughs> to the left, and it's just not mentioned. It's great. And we were we were actually we were talking about starting a blog that was just background characters from superhero cartoons because we were so enchanted with all of these weird people in the interstices of the of, of the X Men cartoon. So so that was already very much there. I also I love odd interstitial stuff it's what i gravitate to just as a default i also kind of wonder sometimes like so we're we obsess over these characters i kind of wonder if any of the listeners care at all or if it's just us entertaining ourselves and either way i'm fine with it well i think just from reading the comments uh that go along with every post and and seeing the things that get put up on the tumblr and stuff at the least people very much appreciate that you appropriated the Voyage of the Mimi theme and made it Peter Corbo's theme. <laughs> like Peter Corbo now has theme music. So as as magnificent as he was before, you guys have added to that legend in a way that people can never take away. So to, to contrast uh, blank canvases that you guys are in love with, the potential of, characters like you just mentioned that are a little more solidified in a reader's mind uh, and a character that you guys like kind of don't like in various ways charles xavier but if they do revive him somehow and they start to write him consistently ish as being closer to like the patrick stewart incarnation of the man rather than the kind we've heard about consistently in the comics this is more for rachel than for you miles because rachel's (laughs) definitely got a more complicated history with the character but if he comes back and they start to write him less as a dick and less as the sort of mercurial ass that he's been for over 50, 60 years, and they start to make him a little bit more like Picard, would you be able to roll with that or would you still put your arms up like the how about no bear? <laughs> um, I mean, I, I do not want to be close personal friends with Charles Xavier. Yeah. <laughs> um, but we actually had a, a listener question that was almost, it was really similar to that, which was, was should they bring him back? And I'm going to answer with my typical non-committal answer, which is that I am absolutely for it if there is a good narrative justification. If there's a good story where there's a role that needs to be played by Charles Xavier or by his resurrection, 
awesome. I think the challenge with bringing Xavier back is going to be finding ways for him to be relevant because yeah. the X-Men have, at this point, but really before his death, had kind of grown past him. Figuring out how to integrate him into that universe has, has been a challenge for a very long time. And that role that you're describing, the Patrick Stewart one, is very much the benevolent teacher and very much, I think, dependent on and built around him running the school. And so without that, I wonder to what extent you could really have that version of Xavier and have it not ring very false. So I, I think the way I would probably handle that is, you know, Cyclops is still leading his revolutionaries. The Jean Grey school is still going on, or maybe they merge. We'll see what happens with Crisis on Infinite X-Men's. <laughs> um, but I like the idea of him going like, all right, you know what? You guys are doing things that way, but I think there's still something to my dream as I believed in it. I like the idea of him training essentially another group of New Mutants-esque characters. Mm -hmm. And mm -hmm. also these black and yellow costumes have been gathering dust for a while. Somebody <laughs> used to wear them. Well, and I also, like, specifically, if this comes to pass, and I'm, again, I don't know if this is going to come to pass, but next summer that the Marvel Universe essentially sort of reboots itself. Because that's basically what happened at the end of the crisis over on DC side. Now, I'm not saying Marvel would do it the way DC does it. I'm trying to, to head off at the pass any sort of complaints for people <laughs> who might be listening that buy into the Marvel versus DC thing to varying degrees. I'm trying to head that off. Mm -hmm. I'm, what I'm just saying is if it does end up being sort of like a, we're going to start it over, you guys. Not all the way over, but we're going to kind of start it over, you guys. Would you be able to roll with a version of Charles, or would all those earlier versions of Charles still be in your head? Oh, man. That is an excellent um, question. Both? Both? Yeah. I mean, they'd, they'd all still be in our heads, but I, it's, it's X-Men. It's superheroes. Characters get reborn and memory wiped and semi-rebooted all the time. I feel like we've kind of learned to roll with those punches. Yeah, and I mean, we've certainly seen that that Xavier, you know, as, as personified in the movies, you know, the movies have their ups and downs, but I think Xavier is great consistently, no matter mm -hmm. who's playing him. I would like to see a character like that again. And I mean, I think as long as Marvel didn't completely wipe the slate clean, you could actually do some interesting stuff with that. Like, hey, you're this different version of Charles Xavier. Look at some of the crap that other versions of you have done. Now you sort of have to deal with it. You know, you, Ooh, I like you sort of have to live in the shadow of the other you. I want to see Xavier do something different if he's going to come back. I would like to see lobbyist Xavier. I would like to see pundit Xavier. I would like to see humanitarian Xavier. I would like to see Xavier look at his dream and look at other ways to achieve it in different directions. And I'd like to see stories that we haven't seen told. All right, now, one of the mo world's most beloved critics, uh, maybe its most beloved period, uh, was Roger Ebert. Now, it's going to seem strange that I bring him up, but bear with me. <laughs> I promise this long walk will arrive at a destination. Now, Ebert loved movies and loved to judge movies for what they were trying to do and how well they succeeded at that goal. And you guys kind of do the same thing when you're talking about X-Men issues. It's not so much this is just a bad X-Men issue, but is it a bad X-Men issue because it didn't succeed what it was trying to do in terms of the story? And that's sort of how Ebert would look at the movies. It's why you can see he gave thumbs up to stuff like Anaconda. Like, because he did. Anaconda did what it was trying to do. Thumbs up. Like, not a huge thumbs up, but he still gave it a thumbs up. But even for all that good-natured intent, and you, Miles, specifically have talked about trying to maintain that good-natured intent, even when you're talking about total dross here on the show, everybody loved it when Roger just tore a movie open like a velociraptor disemboweling its <laughs> dinner. Now, you guys take care not to seem too negative during any given episode, even when the subject matter is practically laying down with its belly exposed and speaking the Velociraptor equivalent of eat me. You're going to end up in the 90s sooner rather than later. <laughs> it's going to happen. Now, I don't want to spoil those episodes in any way, but how the hell are you going to handle some of that shit? 
Oh, like, do you geez. still try to pick through the pile to find sustenance, or do you indulge, as Ebert did every now and again, that velociraptor instinct? How are you guys going to handle when stuff like Onslaught comes at you? Well, like, it's always looming on the horizon. No, the 90s. that's true. Yeah. That's true. We can we can see that meteor coming closer. <laughs> oh, my God. We're going to have to do the end of New Mutants. We're going to hit that point. We are we are going to hit that specific transition. Yeah, the life eldening. You know, it's <laughs> it's a it's a hard question because you know we we do want to be positive. I think if we were just tearing stuff apart all the time, it would it would get boring. Kind of like with um, Yahtzee Kroshaw, the video game reviews he does. If he gets too positive, people get bored. I think it's kind of the opposite with us. Mm-hmm. And so, you know, I, th- I think still finding things to at least get enthusiastic about, even if it's getting enthusiastic about how dumb it is. I yeah. mean, you know, Adam X the Extreme. Yeah. He's my favorite terrible character to love. <laughs> Here's the thing with the 90s. They are largely terrible, but they are largely terrible in entertaining ways. I've talked about X-Men Origins Wolverine and how it's just an objectively abysmal movie. And I absolutely love it because it is so committed it, the ways it's terrible are so textured and nuanced. It's just the gift that keeps on giving. And I feel like that's what that's what the 90s are going to be like. You know, we're going to pick them apart, but we're going to pick them apart very cheerfully. And, and we're gonna, it's going to be one of those, man, this is just ridiculous and over the top. And it's pretty terrible. And oh, this is so fun. Yeah, I mean, I think by necessity, we won't be able to do the very, like, you know, a few issues per episode thing that we're doing right now, just because there's a lot less interesting stuff going on during a lot of that era, or, you know, during some other eras as well. Yeah, I mean, I think when we have, like, seven X-Books going, what actually makes it onto the podcast is also going to be much more mediated by what we care about enough to talk about. Or what we think is important enough to X-Men history. I mean, if it's Mm -hmm. a story point that burns through six issues and is never mentioned again and there are no consequences of and it's not good, something like that we could probably skip okay yeah. so there are going to be some things in the night where like we can't have fun disemboweling this essentially and we can't even gather enjoyment out of completely taking it apart so we're just going to go ahead and set it aside you guys have no problems just mentioning that an arc exists and then saying it's bad don't don't i mean that's what it. we did with like three quarters of the silver age i feel like <laughs> if it's the things that that make something worth talking about on the podcast if it's good if it's interesting if it's narratively significant if it's something that we care about, because honestly, you know, this is a benevolent dictatorship. This is totally influenced by what we like and what we care about. <laughs> yes. Mm. So I, I suspect, too, in the 90s and late 80s, we're going to be talking a lot more about business and about the personal dynamics of, of Marvel editorial, because that's where you see major priority shifts that inform mm. the way the comics look. But unless it's got one or more of those things... I don't see a lot of point to covering it. So is it possible that when we get to some of the more uh, problematic story arcs, the more questionable tales being told, what we're going to end up hearing on the podcast is talking about how editors and the writers and the politics and the bullpen led to the story. So essentially what's going to happen are the, the stories are going to end up being fuel to talking about the politics of the industry at a time when the industry was itself sort of like a nuclear bomb going off. X-Men Volume 2, number one, I suspect is going to be a lot of that. Oh, yeah. I mean, there's a lot to say about that issue as a comic, but the politics around it are freaking fascinating. Okay. Yeah, and the, the collector boom. They're going to see a lot of Sean House citations once we hit the 90s <laughs> again. Well, and when we do get to the 90s as, as a follow-up, I just wanted to, to get your take on this real quick. Could you pick an arc or a storyline that you are really interested in tackling 
and then maybe that arc or storyline's opposite number? That's a that's a great question. I think oh, for God. me, the one I'm really excited about tackling, because yes, it's it's just an exercise in excess, an exercise in excess. I got you. I, I can't not do that anymore. I just, I can't, <laughs> if you're I about can't to not. say what I was going to say, I'm going to be so sad. I probably am because I'm talking about Age of Apocalypse. You are not talking about what oh, I'm okay. talking about. But yeah, for me, Age of Apocalypse, it's so 90s. It's such a huge gimmicky stunt. But I also love it because it just goes nuts with uh, with story beats. You know, it takes these decades of continuity. It's like, all right, what if we just threw all that out the window and did things in a completely bizarre fashion? A bizarre fashion that, yes, does involve a lot of facial tattoos and unnecessary blades and pouches. <laughs> but it's just so interesting and it's fun. And you can tell that everybody, you know, even in the places where the story contradicts itself, even in the places where a book didn't need to exist necessarily, you can tell that everyone was having a really good time making it. And I think that really comes through. Also, it's the glam timeline. And that's important. Important. Oh yeah, Mr. Sinister is just a fabulous motherfucker in that in that uh, <laughs> that arc. Absolutely. And as far as something that I don't want to cover, for me, I think it's the stuff right after Age of Apocalypse when we came back from this, admittedly, if nothing else, novel storyline, this really interesting, different concept, to just back to the main universe. And I think X Men really struggled to figure out what to do with itself, really, from that point. And I may take some flack for saying this, but I think from that point until Grant Morrison hit years later, yeah. I think that's sort of the the fallow period where people were trying to make X-Men yeah. interesting, but there just weren't a lot of good ideas. And that does include Onslaught as well. You could basically suggest that, that was the dark times. Uh, yes, I would absolutely call it that. And that's that is actually quite a few years. And that's the part I'm kind of nervous about being able to cover in an interesting fashion but with any degree of depth yeah, yeah. so i'm i'm gonna watch your face while i say this because i'm really looking forward to ex- the expression the story i am most looking forward to covering from the 90s is executioner's song that's actually a great answer <laughs> um and i i want to expand on this it represents everything excessive and ridiculous and stupid about the 90s and especially about 90s x-men on the other hand One of my favorite things about this podcast is that it is a chance for me to flex muscles and use the personal compendium of really obscure and objectively pointless information that I have assembled over the years about things like the Grey Summers family tree and minutiae of X-Men continuity. And Executioner's Song is kind of the locus of that. I feel like also that it it is an arc that is not necessarily good to read, but it's just very rich ground for explanation. Right, yeah, I think it has like more time travel and clones than any other city per capita in the United States. Just the reveal of the fact that Strife might be either Nathan Christopher Summers or a clone of him, and just the incredibly convoluted way that that's hinted at it's going to be really, really fun to try to make sense of. Like for me, this is this is the equivalent of like a crossword puzzle fiend getting one of those full wall crossword puzzles. <laughs> like this is I, I look I look at this and I see potential for just like virtuosic ridiculousness. All right. Now for the next question, I'm stealing this from Nick Hornby, specifically his creation, Rob Gordon <laughs> from High Fidelity. Now, I know you both put Claremont up on the pedestal when it comes to overall impact on the X-Men as well. He should be. I think he's held in very high esteem. So obviously he's got a slot locked into the all-time top five X-Men writers. I'm going to stick to writers for now because I think both your lists for artists would go Sienkiewicz, 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 Sienkiewicz. Sienkiewicz because, There's room for John Cassidy in there. Because he spit hot fire. Yes. <laughs> but each of you, who are the four writers that join Claremont on your Desert Island top five? Man. You don't have to rank them in order. Just there's four other writers that you got to stick. You can um, take your time if you need. 
I'm going to go for a mix of personal favorites, super high quality and overall impact. So I'm going to put Louis Simonson in there. Claremont was the the main architect of the X universe, but she was she was right up there for a lot of it. Dennis Hopeless. Yeah, good answer. Um, For X-Men season one, but also for his run on X-Force, because Dennis Hopeless is incredibly good at stripping X-Men and and X-Force down to the stuff that makes it work making it accessible, making it modern. And that's something that's very hard to do in any long-lived franchise and especially hard to do in X-Men. I have never read a Dennis Hopeless X-Men story that I did not like. Alan Davis. Alan Davis's run on Excalibur is one of my go-to happy places in comics. I think it's phenomenally good. I also think it's incredibly fun and it takes, you know, concepts and characters and games. You know, I question whether it's an X-book, even in the traditional sense that we look at and that it's not really built around the metaphor or mutation or that stuff. But it's such a cool, fun departure. So that's that's three slots. Um, yeah, one left. One left to put on your Desert Island top five. Oh, shoot. Man, this <laughs> means I'm going to have to choose between Morrison and Whedon. And that's and, and Bendis I'm and Rekha. So, I'm and... so happy it came down to that. <laughs> oh, I'm God. so happy it came down to that. <laughs> one lives, oh. one dies. Hmm, well, I'm, I'm thinking of, of approaches and specific strengths. So I'm not going to choose Whedon because I feel like in terms of function, he's a little bit redundant to hopeless. And if I'm putting together a, an island of X writers who will will repopulate the X writer, <laughs> good way to look at it. Yes, yes. I, I this wanna... is some weird slash fiction, man. <laughs> All of a sudden, I'm... Whedon went from depressed to super happy that he is no longer on this fucking island. <laughs> Tumblr's currently going insane as we say this. <laughs> who will at least have to intellectually repopulate? You know, well, the the X universe. Um, I I will. See, now that you're envisioning it as being an island, you almost want to just throw Morrison on there, don't you? <laughs> I'm pretty sure he knows how to like hunt and kill anything, so, including man. So here's my issue with Morrison as an X-Writer. He's really brilliant. Take on the franchise was really fresh. It's really good. I am a continuity nut. Yeah. And he didn't do any research. <laughs> and it makes me absolutely crazy. His version of Magneto is like why I drink. Yeah. Um, yeah. And and I again I love his work. I love a lot of what he does, but I I, I can't put him in my top five for that reason. Like I okay. might put him in five most important, but he's not in my top five. Although um, as a consolation, uh Mr. Morrison, if you're listening, uh next time they reissue any of the X-Men stuff that you did, his magneto is the reason why I drink, if that is not a blurb of the back. <laughs> Then, You're slipping. Well, well, if it's if it's not a blur, what we can do is just take it and write it in marker on the back of our copy. <laughs> that said, Assault on Weapon Plus remains one of my weird favorites. Mm-hmm. Um, but okay, yeah, I've got my fifth. My fifth is Greg Pak, mm. and he has not written a lot of Central X Men. He's written weird spinoff books, like he's currently writing the Storm series. His run on, um, uh, yes, he did Extreme X Men. He did a brief run of Astonishing that led up to Extreme. I like his stories. I like his approach to story, and I really like his approach to X-Men and their larger ideals. Okay, so um, my answers are going to be in part mediated by yours because like, I feel like if we just choose the same writers, it's gonna, it's not going to be are interesting. Are our islands going to fight? Maybe. It'd be like the, the old matches of worms you could do with the two islands. And, uh, anyway. Oh, God, middle school flashbacks. Yeah, so um, that being said, I can't not choose Louise Simonson, mm-hmm. uh, previously Louise Jones, just because the impact she had on X-Men is unbelievable. I mean, she wrote enormous chunks of both X-Factor and New Mutants, and a lot of people don't like her New Mutants after Claremont. I personally do, but I can see why they don't. All of the editorial work she did uh, in the Claremont era is just, you know, her, her contributions are unmatched in that regard. So definitely her. Beyond that, uh, I would say 
of the Morrison Whedon fight, while Morrison's impact on the X Men, I mean, he, he revitalized the X Men universe, absolutely. That's a big deal, but for me, Whedon just got the X Men. Specifically, he got Claremont's vision of the X Men and updated it in a way that made me really happy. And so I think if, if Morrison resurrected the X Men, Whedon was the one that really shaped them into what they needed to be. Mm-hmm. Maybe Morrison resurrected them, Whedon gave them back their souls. Uh, there we go. That's actually a really good way of putting it. Yes. How very poetic. Um, <laughs> I didn't think about Nightcrawler. So. Yeah. So beyond that, I have a sort of strange choice for my next one, and that's actually Scott Lobdell. Because while the 90s are considered a really bizarre and messed up time, and a lot of the story stuff there was not so hot at all, that era, which was concurrent to the X-Men cartoon, I think is a lot of what defined the X-Men in a lot of people's eyes. So I think he was really influential in that regard. I have such mixed feelings about that. I have mixed feelings about that for reasons that have nothing to do with story that I think I assume that folks are in large part familiar with. And I I go back and forth because there's his run on it isn't one of my favorites as a whole, but it's got some of my very, very favorite moments. His Cyclops is one that just clicks with me really hard and really consistently. And I feel so weird about that. And I feel so weird recommending that at this point. That's one of those things that I keep coming back to. And I mean, I think that you have to keep coming back to when, again, you're talking about anything that's had as many people involved in it as X-Men is because there are going to be missing stairs and loose wheels yeah, I, I definitely don't disagree with you. For me, it's just um, the level of influence he had on X-Men, you, it's just it's kind of undeniable. So who's the fifth? See, that's the hard part, and I've been going back and forth, and I was I was thinking of Alan Davis earlier, but you chose Alan Davis, so now I kind of I kind of don't want to. Oh, I left out Kieran Gillen. That's another one. Kieran Gillen is, is also excellent. Another I think I'm, one. I'm actually going to say Jason Aaron, um, oh, a, a much okay. more recent choice, but his run on specifically Wolverine and the X-Men, the first volume of it, brought a tone to the X-Men that I think had been missing for years, and honestly, it had never really been that combination of dramatic and ridiculous. Excalibur kind of went in that direction, but Aaron's Wolverine and the X-Men run had the advantage of being central to the Marvel Universe, which meant that all of the absurdity and ridiculousness he was throwing in there was absolutely like front and center canon, and I think he handled it immensely deftly and immensely quotably and immensely memorably. That's a really good point. So yeah, I think Jason Aaron is definitely my number five. All right, so we're going to stay in Listville here for a little bit. You know, comics fans are of a somewhat more organized bent than yes. other people I found. And I'm not just talking like alphabetizing long boxes or whatever stereotypical uh, <laughs> example just popped into your head. But you're dealing with fictional universes that overlap and collide as much as superheroes do. You kind of have to want to put things in some semblance of order as part of that. It's just what comics fans did before the internet showed up and allowed us to fight each other. It's actually, sidebar. Can you guys remember your first real fight over an X-Men or Marvel character on the internet? Oh, jeez, jeez. See, I was I was kind of an internet late bloomer in that regard, but back in my AOL instant messenger days, yeah. I think it might for me have been about Psylocke and about how annoyed I was when the character was completely revamped um, from being her original like telepathic British self to the, to the ninja type. Uh-huh. And that was not a popular choice because Psylocke was, you know, super, super sexified and, you know, we were all teenage boys, so that was appealing. But I'm like, no, you don't understand the way she was before. Have you not read Alan Moore's run of Captain Britain? Do you not get it and they they didn't get it um and i I don't think i convinced anyone i don't think anybody ever convinces anybody of anything on the internet but nonetheless it was important to get that out there all right that was that was the first hill that you fought and died on (laughs) i think so it was psylocke hill uh rachel do you have a memory this is gonna sound so weird because i'm me but i'm not sure i've ever actually gotten into a serious fight about x-men on the internet what 
so I yell a lot about X-Men and I, I talk about X-Men in a, a tongue-in-cheek, aggressively bombastic way a lot. I've gotten into, you know, does it hurt to be so wrong conversations with Kenna? Because like, that's the way we have conversations about X-Men. Yeah. Kenna meaning Kenna, Kenna Conklin, Conklin of, who's, uh... of geekportland.com, who's, mm-hmm. who's fantastic, but um, she's wrong about X-Men. <laughs> um, she's, she's maybe, if, if, if there is in Portland a hierarchy of X-Men fans, if you guys are occupying the top two slots, she's probably the third. She's way up there. Yeah, she's, she's, she's brilliant. Yeah, she's, she's amazing. Um, <laughs> and we're, I'm counting her as the third so in the same city where there are at least five different people writing X-Men. Well, right? <laughs> I was going to say where Brian Michael Bendis lives. <laughs> <laughs> but I'm still putting Kenna Conklin at third. Bendis, yeah, Bendis yeah. might not even make the, the Desert Island top five fans of X-Men. Can I, can <laughs> like I tell you why, why Kenna is the one of my one of my favorite platonic ideal comic, comics nerds ever stories. Yeah, uh, she once bought a new bed to make sure she had one that was high enough to store long boxes under. That is dedication. That's nice. She's fantastic. But yeah, I a lot of the the X Men fights that happen online are about one of two things, which are continuity or opinion. Continuity, there's a correct answer or there's not. As far as opinion, I, I think a lot of the comics argument that happens online is sort of predicated on the idea that other people's opinions somehow dilute yours. You don't buy I that. I don't really buy that, and I don't really know how to engage with it. It just <laughs> it it baffles and kind of creeps me out. Okay. So I mean, I will I will I will yell about X Men on the internet, but I generally don't fight. I just sort of yell. <laughs> <laughs> All right. So back to the main question from that sidebar there. Uh, as fans, since we are still in Listville. What are your three favorite X-Men story arcs? And does that list change when you put on your critics' glasses? And oh, how? Oh, it's you're, you're oh, asking God. me to choose which of my children get to survive. Only I, three of them, too. Oh. We've, we've shrunk down the number. It was yeah. five before. And we're like at the tired brain fried, just picked apart God Loves Man Kills for an hour stage, too. So I know that whatever three things I'm going to say, I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to leave. And like two hours later, I'm going to be like, oh, shit, I forgot my favorite yeah. one. Oh, but that, yeah. that, this might be where the most honest appraisal comes. Like, this is no, the sort of thing. If you get someone drunk and then you ask them that super <laughs> important question... Truth's probably going to pop out of their head because they're not they're not sober enough to to dilute it at all. Well, no, spontaneity will pop out of their head. That's I, <laughs> that's that's an important distinction. I I we totally got in an argument about this in the car on the way here. <laughs> we did. It's true. We did. <laughs> because okay. because Miles is very much in the the you think as you speak, and I'm very much in the you figure out what you're going to say, and then you find the words that say that because everything has different connotations, and then you say it. Mm-hmm. The, the model of conversation. Basically, I just babble constantly is what it comes down to, and and. I talk like a supervillain. So uh, <laughs> <laughs> high five. Bam. Uh, okay. So, so top three stories. I and mean, it, I feel like does God loves man kills count because that's going to be, that, that's, yeah, that's that a has slot to count. away. Yeah. So that's, that's one. Okay. Yeah. Cause and you actually already, you mentioned that earlier. Yeah. yeah. That's, that's so, so we've each got two left then. Yeah. Okay. I mean, I kind of feel like if we're talking individual stories, like not just big continuity affecting arcs, but it, any story, it, it can, it can be, a, it can be a single issue. It can be uh, an arc. Mm-hmm. It can be a graphic novel, but it counts as a self-contained story. Okay. I'm, I'm going to see if I can resist choosing the Dark Phoenix saga. It's just like trying not to mention Wolverine for a really long time, just on <laughs> principle. Um, but I would say X-Men Season 1 by Dennis Hopeless and Jamie McKelvey is mm-hmm. one of the greatest X-Men stories ever written. It just distills what the X-Men are about. And specifically, you know, the, the more youthful personal angle down to exactly what it needs to be. It kind of reminds me, and I'm sure you've made this reference before, Rachel, but it kind of reminds me of the Justice League and Justice League Unlimited cartoons and that it takes this very mm-hmm. complex set of stuff and just sort of strains it down to, all right, what's the most important stuff? What can we take 22 minutes, or in this case, however many pages it is, 
and just, you know, cut to the core of what the X-Men are and why we like them and why they're fun. Yeah, there's a concept, and I don't know if it's original to TV tropes, but it's where I first encountered it, of um, franchise dilution versus franchise distillation. Yeah, yeah, exactly. And the Justice League, really the the DCAU is the DCU distilled. Mm -hmm. It's concentrated. It's the essence of it. And that's absolutely what X-Men season one is. And yeah, that's on my list too for the exact same reason. So (laughs) this is, I was, this is bad. I was, I was thinking, you know, what's, what's the third slot as you were starting to talk about that? Right. Damn it. I, I mean, as much as Rachel and I have very different opinions, like when it comes down to it, I think we like X-Men for pretty similar reasons. And so mm-hmm. we, we gravitate towards similar, similar favorites. You're probably going to end up having mm-hmm. the same three because if, if, you're, if your third isn't Dark Phoenix Saga. Oh, yeah. I yeah. I, I'm trying to think of any reason, any way it could not be. But if we have to cut it down to the three best mm-hmm. X-Men stories ever, I I think. Three I, best or three favorites? Well, that sort of goes to the, the part with the, the critical glasses. Like, so critical glasses ends up being three best. Okay. And then just you as a fan, that basically ends up being three favorites. Okay, sure. That's a good question. So, all right. As a fan, I can't not say Dark Phoenix. I yeah. just can't. I can't avoid it. It's it's an incredible story. I mean, in terms of its influence on the continuity, in terms of the, the writing and the art and their synergy, um, just in terms of how emotionally effective it is, affecting it is, how exciting it is, how much how it runs the gamut from high soap opera to high action. Like, it's it's kind of got it all. As a fan, those three. As a critic, I think I would probably swap out X-Men Season 1 for Grant Morrison's run. Because I think from a critical perspective, it is brilliantly done. I have some of the same issues as you, Rachel, where Mm -hmm. a lot of his creative decisions didn't work for me. Some of the stuff with Magneto and Zorn, Zorn. certainly. Zorn. Oh, Zorn. Zorn. Um, From a critical perspective, I mean, Morrison is a technical master. Mm -hmm. He's got brilliant ideas. He executes them in brilliant and novel ways. That's some of the best, critically, that I think X-Men has ever been. What about you, Rachel? Oh, God. This is... You know, I'm going to go with the Brood Saga. Actually, critically, I'm going to say I'm going to say God Loves Man Kills mm. and the Brood Saga and Grant Morrison. Yeah. Oh, although now that I think about it, shit, I kind of want to trade out something for the Demon Bear Saga. The Demon Bear Saga is amazing, too. There have been so many superlatively good stories and so many definitive stories that if even if we narrow it down to that, we've still got, you know, 30 to pick from. God Loves Man Kills, the Brood Saga and Grant Morrison, critically. And it, do those change uh, as a fan? Did the glasses change or are you rocking uh, bifocals at this point? They, like you can swap through. They definitely change as a fan. As a fan, um, it's God Loves Man. Well, I don't know if it is God Loves Man Kills. I think God Loves Man Kills is the best. Mm-hmm. I don't think there's any question there. Favorites for me tend to be ones I go back to and read when I'm having a bad day. So definitely season one. So definitely, definitely season one. I've probably read season one more times than any other X-Men story. I mean, Joss Whedon's run is is is, def- is another comfort read for me. You know, I'm going to go with something even more modern because if we're just going for it first, I'm going to say the first arc of Cyclops. Greg Rucka's arc of Cyclops? R- Rucka and Dotterman specifically. In fact, you know what? I'm even, I'm going to go so specific. I'm going to say Cyclops number three. <laughs> that is very specific. Cyclops number three. But it is an incredibly good issue. It's an incredibly good issue. And it's an issue that I have really strong feelings about for reasons that have nothing to do with continuity and nothing to do with fandom. Like it's an issue that clicks for me on so many personal levels. And it's just, it's one of my, it's one of my very, very favorites. All right. Now, one last list-based question before we get to the, the reader Q&As. Because you, <laughs> you, readers have questions they want to ask too. I will be the voice of the readers. Uh, one last list-based question. You guys definitely have a fascination with crap-ass hats. <laughs> Can you put together a list of the five crappiest hats? Oh, shit. I, I do not entire Marvel universe. Okay, entire I'm gonna Marvel say universe. I do not feel qualified to answer this question without research. 
I feel like this is an important question and mm-hmm. it's one that I do want to address. And maybe we, maybe we can address this in a separate blog post at some point. Do the five <laughs> worst hats of the Marvel universe. That's I, I could see doing that. Um, but I, I do not feel like I'm coming into this with adequate frame of reference to really do it justice. And I, I do not want to classify things as the worst hats with the knowledge that there may be worse hats lurking out there somewhere. Rachel takes the hat game very seriously. I wow. do. Wow. I really do. She does not front on the hat game. No, <clears throat> it's good to be precise about these things. <laughs> yes. Uh, well quoted. So I'm obligated, despite my ignorance, to to come up with some hat Are answers. You? We've established already that the dynamic here is that she is going to stop and consider her words before <laughs> spitting them out, and that you are going to blurt out what your heart feels. What my what what does your heart tell you? Although here's here's can I modify the question slightly? Which is worse, Havoc's original hat or his '90s gauntlets? Oh, geez. Okay, so I'm going to say something here. I, I've, I've mostly kept it quiet because I respect my podcasting partner, best friend, and wife's opinion. Mm-hmm. I kind of like Havoc's hat. All right? <laughs> you I kind of like it. You can like it. It's just also terrible. Well, no, I'll tell you why. There is a miniseries that I think was written by Walter Simonson, I want to oh, say. Oh, Meltdown? Havoc and Wolverine Meltdown. It came out sometime in the 80s, and nobody remembers it, and it had this weird painted art, and they ended up shoving control rods into a nuclear guy to beat him at the end, and it's weird. That's but, not how it works. Uh, well, We went to a nuclear reactor last week. He we wasn't know there. that's not how it works. <laughs> um, but anyway, so no, in that, everything's super exaggerated, and so like Havoc's hat is out of control, mm-hmm. and I really like that. It's just really intense. And you know, it's like it's the equivalent to Kelly Jones doing Batman's ears, and they just grow and grow and yeah, grow yeah, yeah. over that run. And so for that reason, my least favorite incarnation of Havoc's hat is actually the current one in Uncanny Adventures because it's so subtle. It's just like white stripes on his head. It's like that's boring. It's, it's the Adidas hat. Go big or go home. So I'm gonna say, in terms of terrible hats, I'm gonna get shit for this. I know it. Wolverine's mask is dumb. Okay. There is no reason for those freaking like fins to be sticking out of the side of his head. It's going to mess up his peripheral vision when every time he turns his head, there's going to be air resistance. Like maybe if they were sharp or something in the mm-hmm. 90s, then he could like join up with Adam X the Extreme and they could just sort of shake around and cut everybody. <laughs> can we put Adam X's baseball cap on the horse hats? Yes, yes, we can. Baseball cap. <laughs> so so that's up there. Um, the, the worst hat that I've seen that is probably a less controversial choice is that of a recent one we covered, that of Alexander Von Doom in the mm. Beauty and the Beast miniseries. Yeah, that is a seriously, seriously unfortunate hat. Like, he's basically just got a bucket over his head with a bunch of random cutouts so he can see. This is one of the many reasons that Doom rejects him, I think. He's like, all right, first of all, you're a terrible villain and your ideas are bad. And second, you have no sense of style. What are you even doing? He's basically, he's predating Butters as Professor Chaos by a couple decades, essentially. I, I think so. I mean, Doom's <laughs> like all right look at this this is well thought out i got my freaking tunic and my short skirt and my metal armor and my hood that's up all the time like this is a complete ensemble if you change a single thing it would be worse than it currently is you've just turned doom into tim gunn by the way I, I yeah. That's yeah. Valid. yeah you know. I, now you're imagining tim gunn as doom aren't you? i am i really am you guys cannot see the enormous grin on my face right now no, but trust there. it's I will, there i will describe it to you this way have you seen the poster for the 40 year old virgin Oh, maybe? Maybe. You just had Steve Carell smile (laughs) from the poster. It sounds derogatory. It's not derogatory. You used the word beatific earlier. (laughs) Just just the state of perfect joy. Exactly. It's very much that. Oh, man. I need a tiny Dr. Doom to like sit on my desk and yell, make it work. (laughs) (laughs) Make it work. See, it would be so good. It would be so intimidating. I'm going to argue with you briefly about Havoc's hat, if I may. Okay. So here's the thing about Havoc's hat that bugs me most. It's useless. Havoc's hat is part of the costume introduced by Larry Trask. 
it's introduced along with the suit with the concentric circles, which I actually really like. And the idea is that the, the suit, not the hat, the suit monitors his power output. The hat exists for Trask to mind control him. That is its function. That is its function in the story. It's got that gem thing, and that's how Trask punishes him or fucks with him or whatever. That is the only thing it's ever shown as doing. So not only is it dumb looking, it is useless. See, okay, my understanding from what I recall of the 80s, and it's been a while since I've read it. it's, It's actively detrimental because it's like plugged into his nervous system or something well okay so the gem goes away so i am going to choose as a fan to assume that with the gem gone those things sticking out of his head are sort of like heat sinks like they help the plasma kind of dissipate so it doesn't build up too much and i do know that his suit did that for a while so this is my personal it's not head cannon it would be my personal hat cannon i like it (laughs) can you can you imagine havoc walking through a room with a ceiling fan (laughs) oh god it would be terrible (laughs) (laughs) can you imagine how many light fixtures he's gotten caught in (laughs) this is one of those points where i realize superhero costumes and part of the fun is they don't have to be made of real materials they just have to be drawn but they do kind of interact with their environment so maybe it's just the fact that it's it's almost christmas but what i'm seeing is like he's at some christmas party and uh in in this world either he and polaris have an arrangement or they're not together so it's all okay um because i want my heroes to do nice things an arrangement um and and so uh yeah he's like you know hey there's there's a pretty lady under the under the mistletoe over there it's i don't know rain sinclair because she's the first female character that's jumping to miles mind right now oh no don't don't go with rain because that that gets so creepy so fast oh that's the true genosha they relationship. Arc. no okay. they didn't have a relationship they she, genosha and the mutates and the the mind slavey thing you don't don't okay. go there that's about, a bad ship bad ship how let's that change ship it. sinks it, it, this is this is going to be cecilia reyes because okay, to the best of my knowledge they don't have much of a dynamic right and we can assume that she'll deck him if he, if he does anything egregious or just put up a force field so anyway yeah. in this hypothetical that's gotten way more complex than i intended um you know he's like hey there's there's a pretty doctor x-men lady i'm gonna lean in to kiss her there's some mistletoe oh oh shit oh hang on oh shit i i'm stuck i'm stuck cecilia could you um could you give me a hand here? Oh, oh the, the, the moment's totally Oh, gone. see, I the thought you were going to have him just hang the mistletoe from his hat. So it was perpetually over him. No, it's, I thought, it's way more awkward. I thought example. you were going to make him the unofficial X-Men tree topper. <laughs> <laughs> no, no. I, come on. The X-Men have an actual angel on their team. <laughs> yeah, good point. Very good point. We've been trying to figure out actually how to make an archangel topper for our tree. <laughs> Final point. Juggernaut's hat is really dumb, but I think he would be a lesser character if his hat was not dumb, so I'm okay with it. That's true. Yeah, it builds character. All right, so uh, we have a question from uh, Kira Gecko, who uh, asked, which version of the school do you guys think did the best job actually teaching mutant teenagers, and which did the worst? The Massachusetts Academy. (laughs) For which? Both? Best. It has an actual curriculum. They did all die. The aliens did all die. That's a really good But they point. were very well educated when they did. So the Xavier school really worries me because I feel like no one who's been in any iteration of it is going to be able to function in the real world because their classes are so completely removed from it. You know, actually, I'm, I'm thinking of, of like graduate success rates and sort of functionality. I'm, it's going to probably have to be the first iteration of it. Okay, like the the original five characters? Yeah, because those characters were all, to at least vague extents, able to do things that weren't superhero things. And in terms of basic educational requirements, I think they're the only ones who got anything close to a standard curriculum. I would have to say, as far as the worst... My answers are actually kind of close to each other because they're both very modern. As yeah. far as the worst, I would have to say the run of the school when 
Chris Yost and Craig Kyle were writing because while the characters did seem to be in classes and actually learning stuff, the mortality rate of that group of students was ridiculous. Mm. They were dying left and right. They were dropping like flies. It was terrible. Even if you're just talking about turning out successful graduates, even if they all you know knew a lot of math and science and history, if only a third of them make it up there to receive their diploma, then maybe they're not doing so. Yeah. Hard. Okay. So that that is, I guess, the Massachusetts Academy's ultimate point of failure too. Yeah. Um, as far as best, I would say the current Jean Grey school. They're all learning a bunch of like real stuff, but they're also learning a lot of super strange stuff. Like, you know, Shi'ar linguistics and the uh, metaphysics of resurrection and how to deal with telepathy and stuff like that. That is cool. That which is... I feel like that really prepares them for the lives they are invariably going to lead in the Marvel Universe. You know, that is a really excellent point. The Marvel Universe is not our universe and it has different requirements. And I think you're right that that's, that is probably the best one. It's definitely the one I would I think I would most like to be a student at. Despite the fact that you'd be, you know, woken up for training sessions in the danger room, which would try to kill you in the middle of the night all the time. So high school. Well, there you go. All right. Uh, and with that, uh, I am uh, fresh out of questions and uh, I am now going to go back behind the curtain, close the curtain and duck down behind the control board and turn this microphone off. Thank you for having me, you guys. Thank you for letting me uh, dirty up your podcast with my dulcet tones. Luckily, you have a really cool follow up to this long and involved interview section that I cannot wait to hear. <laughs> and it is a follow-up, though, that is also dependent on you because it is a follow-up that is going to come back to the one character with the music. <laughs> so it's the end of the year, so everyone is making their best of lists. And there is no better way to, I think, self-aggrandize and reinforce our own importance in our own minds than coming up with and awarding a bunch of silly awards. Indeed. And we thought about what we should call these. We considered the Yabos. That seemed seemed pretty good. But we decided if we wanted to name them after something, we should name them after something really just exceptional. The best of the things. The best of the best. And so it is my great honor, pleasure, and privilege to welcome you to the first annual Super Doctor Astronaut Peter Corbeau Awards for Excellence in Excellence. <laughs> Yes. So we have a few of these. So yes, let's go ahead and get started. So I'm going to jump in first with the best writer of the year. Now, some of these awards are going to be for current comic stuff, and some are going to be for some of the stuff that we've been covering, you know, back from the 70s and 80s over the course of this year. And we'll refer to those as the Corbo Classics, perhaps. So this is a modern Corbo Award, and that is for best writer. And this year, we went back and forth and back and forth because we have a lot of favorites. And the competition has been really stiff because the writing on the X-Books has been almost universally terrific this year. We, we didn't actually come up with lists of finalists. We just discussed these at breakfast this morning. But um, You're ruining the illusion. But, but if we did, I mean, there's been so much good stuff and so much stuff we've really, really loved. But we looked at it and who I feel like is the obvious choice for this, one who's just really impressed us, not only with his writing on X-Books, but his role as an architect of the franchise. And that would be Brian Michael Bendis. Now, he's currently writing all new X-Men and Uncanny X-Men, and he's also really leading the direction of the entire X-Men line. And I gotta say, I was super skeptical when he came on. I felt like he didn't really have all the characters' voices. I wasn't sure about the direction, but he has proven himself time and again over the last couple of years. Yeah, I am not a universally a Bendis fan. I think he's a good writer, but he's not always one of my favorites. His work on X-Men over time and what he's done with it and the directions he's taken it and also how 
much the quality curve, even within what started out as a very strong run, has been just stellar. So for our second uh, 2014 first annual Corbo, we have Best Artist. Rachel, you want to talk about that one? You know, again, I feel like this is something we had a lot of strong contenders. And in looking at what we looked at for Best Writer, we ended up going with the artist who I think is is the closest analog to Bendis right now in terms of defining the visual X-Universe and Marvel Universe, in addition to drawing um, half of a semi-monthly title. And that is Chris Anka. Specifically, I want to call out his costume designs. He's done them for X-Force, for a lot of X-Men characters, for the current X-Factor. They're all really sharp. I just, I love all of them. I mean, Storm's new outfit, they're great. If Bendis is the architect of the current X-Line, Inca is the stylist, and it has never looked better. Also, he gave Psylocke pants. Chris, thank you so much for finally giving Psylocke pants. There should be a special award just for that. She was so cool. Can we just make up one? I should say also that these are real physical awards. In theory, we we have an idea for how we're going to make them. So if you're someone who hears your name on this and you actually would like a Corbeau that you can hang on your wall or put on your desk, let us know because we can do that. It'll probably be made out of cardboard and there will probably be spray paint and maybe glitter involved, but it will be really sincere. That's way better than like your standard bowling trophy. It's way better than the Eisners, man. Have you ever seen them? They're boring. Yeah. Okay, so uh, third we have... Third we have Best Colorist. If you've been watching the video reviews, you already know who this is going to be. Yeah, and that is uh, Chris Sotomayor. His work on Cyclops has just been above and beyond. Now, Best Letterer, we are cheating a little bit. The letter- we're not cheating. We define the rules. Therefore, we're playing by them. That's true. We are playing by the rules. Now, there are good letterers who are working currently at Marvel. The lettering is very nice. If you give out an award for lettering on X-Men, there is only one person who you can in good conscience give it to. And so the award for best letterer now, this year, next year, and every damn year goes to Tom Marzakowski. Okay, uh, after this, we have the Jean Grey Award for Creative Resurrection. We have a couple candidates this year who we've considered, and ultimately we decided that this one goes to Nightcrawler. Right. I mean, you know, while it wasn't particularly convoluted how he came back, okay, it was somewhat convoluted, the fact that the X-Men had to go to hell and fight some devil pirates to who were trying to steal the souls of all of the dead, that was great. And the Banffs were used creatively, which I appreciated. So, best new character. We've seen an, a number of cool new characters this year. But one of them just really, really stood out for us. And that is Forget-Me-Not, who first appeared in X-Men Legacy number 300 and has recently been hanging around X-Force. And his power is that he's quantum invisible. He is impossible to remember if you're not actively looking at or interacting with him. And so I love that conceit that he's been around for like everything important that the X-Men have ever done since very early on, and just nobody remembers him, so he hasn't appeared in any of the comics. It's brilliant, and it's one of the best uses of a retcon ever. And so next up, we have the Harvey and Janet Award for Best Walk-On. This is going to be a classic Corbo. This is looking at an older series. And the winner for this, go to the Denizens of the Heartbreak Hotel in the Beauty and the Beast miniseries. Yeah, these are characters we learn very little about, but it really just speaks to a much larger world and a much longer history that I'm just desperate to know more about. I want to see them do more awesome things. It would be great. Best arc. This is for a complete story or run of more than one issue finished in the year 2014. And that would be, I think, unquestionably, Cyclops Volume 1, the first uh, trade paperback, which is to say the first uh, five issues by Greg Rucka, are phenomenal. And I think it's worth calling out the rest of the creative team on that, too. Um, Russell Dodderman in the first three issues really defined the look of the book and the artwork and remains one of the best artists working at Marvel, and Chris Sotomayor, who obviously won our best colorist for his work on that series. Now, we love X-Men for a lot of reasons. The superpowers are among them, but first and foremost, always are the character conflicts and the clones and the time travel. We would be remiss not to have a category for best soap opera. 
and that has got to be uh, now especially all new X-Men. We have all of the things you just mentioned, Rachel, and we have a lot of both plots and covers that revolve around who's making out with who and who wants to make out with who, and I can totally get behind that. Whom? I don't know whom. But yes, if you're looking for character interaction and all that soap opera, soapy, sudsy goodness, it's all about all new X-Men. It's teenagers making bad decisions for fascinating reasons and getting into ridiculous situations. It's great. So next we have the Silver Lining Award, and this is for the best concept, story, character, or whatever to come out of an overhyped, bloated event. And the winner this year goes to Logan Legacy Number 4, which made us care about Lady Deathstrike. Yeah, Death of Wolverine has had a lot of meh to it, but also a surprising amount of good stuff, and I think that issue is really the best of the best in that regard. Yeah, Logan Legacy has done that a few times, but never so well and never so surprisingly. In the same vein, our next award is the Golden Retcon, and this goes to a story or arc that has creatively or effectively changed continuity. Now, I feel like there are a couple things that could have been finalists, and we really went back and forth on this. Forget Me Not is an obvious choice. I think the future Brotherhood of Evil Mutants, whose modus operandi is literally retcons, is a strong runner. But ultimately, there was really only one choice. And that is actually the movie, X X-Men Days of Future Past. It took a movie franchise that had just gone utterly to shit with X-Men 3 and turned it into something that everyone was really excited about again and had an almost infinite possibility while itself being a really good movie of its own merits. After that, we have the Lost Treasure Award, something that we've discovered through the podcast that we hadn't really experienced before and ended up loving. This is the second award going to this miniseries. This is the Anne Nascenti written uh, four-issue miniseries Beauty and the Beast, which has been largely lost to the ages and is a whole, whole lot more fun than we expected it to be. Yeah, it's uh, it's much stranger than I expected. And while, you know, it's not a an every panel is perfect comic like, say, X-Men 137 or God Loves Man Kills, there's enough interesting, unexpected stuff in it that it really worked. Also, Doctor Doom and Doctor Doom is never a bad thing. In thinking about these, there was something that we kept on wanting to put in, but we can't because it hasn't started yet. And so we made up an award just for that, and that is the Irene Adler Memorial Award for Most Anticipated Future Run on an X-Book. And that is, for us, easily G. Willow Wilson on Adjectiveless X-Men starting in January. She has been doing a killer job on Ms. Marvel, one of my current favorite comics that's coming out, period. And seeing her tackle this all-female team of X-Men is going to be glorious. I mean, everything she writes is good, and I think she's going to be especially phenomenal on that. Yeah, I feel like I should qualify that she's a friend, but also just she's going to blow this out of the water. I cannot wait to read that run. Next, we have the Still the Best Single Issue After All These Years Corbo Award, and that goes to... Do we even need to say it? Well, we might as well. It's Uncanny X-Men number 137. Seriously, it just doesn't get better than that. I mean, Always. that last stand on the moon is heartbreakingly perfect, and I love it so much. As Tom Warzakowski is to X-Letterers, this is to X-Single Issues. It's always going to win that one. All right, next up we have the About Damn Time Award for a book, series, or character that we have been waiting for for decades. And this easily goes to Greg Pak's current series, Storm. I mean, okay, Storm has has probably been more represented in non-comics media than any female character in the Marvel Universe. She's fascinating, she has interesting powers, an interesting backstory, a striking appearance, a really complex and fascinating personality. Why has she not led a book up until this point? Why did it take so long? There's a reason that this award is called About Damn Time. So yeah, if you're not reading Storm, you should really be reading Storm. We love the character, and this series is really doing her justice. It's great. After that, we have the Cyclops Has a Good Day Award, which is pretty much exactly what it sounds yes, like. Yes, this is for a, a comic book or story in which it does not suck to be Cyclops. And you know, it says something that there were actually multiple contenders this year. Oh, man. But ultimately, this went to Wolverine and the X-Men number 40. 
in which Cyclops and Wolverine briefly and conditionally reconcile and have a couple beers to Jean's memory because it's a great moment. It's a great issue. Um, let's see. We've got two awards left. One of them is the Sure Why Not Award. This is another classic Corbo for an element of a story that is ludicrous, ridiculous, unrelated to the central metaphor of X-Men franchise and yet still close and dear to our hearts. And for me, we had to take it way back to the early days of the podcast for the leprechauns of Cassidy Keep. Sean Cassidy, Banshee, has leprechauns living in his castle. We don't know why, but there they are. They factor into the plot, and then they're not really mentioned again except for once or twice later in history. No, they come back. They are in Uncanny X-Men First Class. There's a murder mystery involving the leprechauns. Everything about that sentence you just said is the best sentence I've ever heard in my life. I don't want to live in a world without that sentence. All right, are we missing any? I think we made one ridiculous super sappy category. Well, we have to finish out with we do. the 2014 Super Doctor Astronaut Peter Corbo Award for Excellence in Excellence for the best listeners of any podcast ever. I actually don't know that much about listeners of other podcasts. I just know that ours are really awesome. Seriously, you guys are so freaking great. You are the reason we do this. This is all your fault. Yeah, you have been so passionate and so engaged, and you've you've enjoyed the same nerdy absurdity that we do, and you've also just been really kind to us and to each other. You're yeah, an you're awesome so community. nice. Like we don't know what we did to get such a good batch of listeners, but like you're really civil on the internet, and you look stuff up, and you listen to each other and you reconsider your opinions you send us cool pictures of your halloween costumes and you're basically like we love you all we would like to keep all of you you're great if it turns out that the reason you're this great is because you're not actually real people and you're really like life model decoys or doom bots or something like that then don't don't tell us i was gonna say that's actually pretty awesome too That's a good point. That would be pretty awesome, too. Okay, well, you can tell us. I so, guess yeah, either you, are, way. you are the best across the board. We will not send every single one of you a Corbo, but um, maybe we can make a digital one that people can save and print and, and color their own. We could have a Corbo coloring contest. Corbo coloring contest. Okay, so we'll have a Corbo coloring contest, and the winner will get an actual physical Corbo award. How's I love that? this plan. And with that last Corbo award given out, the episode is at a close. So that was our first giant-sized special. It was definitely giant-sized, and I think it was special, so I think we succeeded. It was special to me, too. Yes. All right, and with that... Rachel and Miles Explain the X-Men is recorded in Portland, Oregon, and produced by Bobby Roberts, who's also the mind behind the Geek Remixed trilogy of pop culture remixes and co-host of the Star Wars podcast, Full of Sith, and whose voice you heard for perhaps the first time ever today. New episodes of Rachel and Miles Explain the X-Men come out every Sunday at our website, rachelandmiles.com, on iTunes and on Stitcher. Check out rachelandmiles.com for lots of extra content, visual companions to every episode, essays, fan art, and lots and lots of cool stuff. This podcast is completely listener-supported and is made possible by you guys, our generous Patreon supporters. Thank you so much for being super rad, and for that matter, for sponsoring this giant-sized annual right here. Uh, If you'd like to become a supporter and you're not already, please check out the link at the top of our website. And speaking of things that those Patreon supporters have achieved, uh, we have three days left as this goes up on our December t-shirt of the month, which is the Nine Vulnerable When Blast and Warning Label t-shirt. I think it's going to survive as a sticker, but not a shirt. After which it will be replaced forever or at least for the month of january by the january t-shirt which is going to be david Wynn's super cool lila cheney concert poster yes i want to put that on my body and wear it all the time yeah like literally we picked that for the january shirt of the month because we both really want ones and that's that's basically the way we can get them you can do this when you have a podcast it turns out (laughs) power so next time i'm actually going to be gone i'm going to be on a mountain now that means the return of emergency backup co-host chris sims who will be joining me next week to talk about dr doom and arcade So I'll see you guys in two weeks. And I'll see you in one.